Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Triano, joined always by Stephen Canistracy. Hello. And we are incredibly excited to bring you episode number three, where we'll be showing you our interview with Dr. Mark Jenkins. Mark Jenkins is the principal euphonium player in the United States Marine Band and also an adjunct professor of euphonium at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. Stephen and I just got done talking with Dr. Jenkins, and he is incredible. Such a large wealth of information. You'll hear that we get into uh, the history of the euphonium, history of the Marine Band. There's a little bit of a, a few philosophical moments <laughs> kind of sprinkled in there as well. Definitely. But uh, before we get engaged in that interview, Stephen, you want to address some of our emails that we received concerning previous episodes? Yes, we have a new segment of the show that we like to call corrections. Uh, and this <laughs> is where this is where um, we get some feedback from from listeners. And uh, that's always welcome. We always love to hear from you. Um, and to clarify anything that we talked about or add additional information. And we got some good information um, from John Connors. He's with the Second Cavalry Brigade Band and the 6th Ohio Mounted Buglers. We mentioned them in episode two. Um, and his very nice email um, contained a correction when we were talking about field musicians and particularly the number of field musicians that were assigned um, to a regiment. So um, we had mentioned in our episode that each regiment was allotted two field musicians. Um, and John's correction is that um, there were actually two field musicians allotted per company. Um, so those field musicians could be fifers, drummers, buglers. Um, and so the, the at the regimental level um you would you would have a massed uh group of field musicians so a, a fife and drum corps because the company is under the regiment um so a full strength infantry regiment their field music um would sometimes be 20 musicians with um two musicians per company and there are 10 companies in a regiment so yeah, that equals out I, to about 20 musicians or as i think we misspoke in the in the episode and said that instead of it being at the company level then the higher regiment level we said that it was regiment and the brigade up on that level so we were crisscrossing some information there probably because we were talking about regimental and brigade bands right so, yeah so essentially we were off one level of of organization so um but then John also went on to say that um, heavy artillery regiments were organized with 12 companies, um, so they would have 24 musicians, uh, if you do the math. Hmm. Um, so thank you, John, for that, that correction. Um, that, that really helped uh, kind of clarify some things uh, for us. Um, and then we've got two other um, uh, corrections definitions. or yeah, definitions of, of words. Um, that are familiar to us, but may not be familiar uh, to people who aren't, uh, you know, heavily into this research field. Um, you'll hear in the upcoming episode with Dr. Jenkins, um, the word billet a few times. Um, and that just refers to a position or a job. A lot of the times when you're talking about military band um, musicians, their, their jobs are referred to as billets their positions are referred to as billets. Um, and then the other definition we wanted to throw out there uh, for some previous episodes was the definition of muster. Um, it refers to 
the process of assembling troops. And it can be used as a verb when you say muster in, that means, um, you know, a formation of troops was formed and assimilated into the army. And then similarly, when you say muster out, that just uh, kind of refers to the uh, decommissioning process of, of those soldiers. So hopefully that provides some clarification. Um, and like we said, we always love to hear from you. So if there's any question you have for us or any any comments, if you'd like to get in touch with us, please feel free to do that. Um, our email address is eabb.podcast at gmail.com. All right. Enjoy the interview with Dr. Mark Jenkins. Welcome, Dr. Mark Jenkins, to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming out today. Thank you for having me. So before we get going, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe what you do for a living, your your multiple side hustles and whatnot? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, so um, I've been in the Marine Band for um, whew, 18 years. I can't believe it's been that long. Uh, 2002 is when I got in and um, graduated from the University of North Texas. Actually, I graduated after I got the job. The job came open in March of 2002. I hadn't quite finished my undergraduate degree. So I auditioned in June of 2002 and, and uh, kind of had a year left of school to finish kind of uh, online and I graduated in 2003. But I've been in the band for 2002. Since 2002, I was appointed principal um, in 2012 when uh, Phil Frankie retired after a great 30-year career in the band. And um, since that time, I've been principal um, and section leader of the Euphoniums. Section leader is more of an administrative position. And then also section commander of the Euphoniums and French Horns. Another administrative position that kind of is more um, uh, larger in terms of larger area of management uh, over the section. But main, main job is, is principal Euphonium in the Euphonium section and um, taking charge of all musical affairs uh, for, for the section at large. Uh, my side hustle, as you put it, is uh, as, uh, as adjunct professor of euphonium at George Mason University, which I've had uh, since probably around 2013. And um, it's been a wonderful position. Of course, I got to know you two guys. And um, Sorry about been, that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, it's been great uh, because I've really been able to expand my uh, teaching chops and uh, also meet wonderful students like yourselves and others. And uh, in the midst of all of that, uh, I, I got my doctoral degree from George Mason University. And uh, as my dissertation, I did the history of the euphonium in the Marine Band, specifically the, um, the biographies of the 46 men who have played the instrument in the band, which is why I think you have me on here today. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, so that's been a really great opportunity, kind of the career and the band. I've always loved history. And so, of course, I love music. So the two, you know, being put, being able to be put together for me has just really been a fascinating and enjoyable side thing you know, on top of the career in music that I've been able to explore, of course, with the, with the dissertation. Yeah. Um, I, know, I know you've been able to give uh, presentations on your research, right, at like the Army Conference. Yeah, that's yes. Yeah, the Army Conference, I did basically a thumbnail version of, of, of the paper, uh, you know, the history of euphonium players. Um, it, you know, it's funny because the dissertation requirements, at least when I did mine at George Mason, were 100 pages. I think it's still the same, you know, 100 page mm -hmm. minimum, yeah, yeah. around 100 pages. And uh, 
I, I did 400. <laughs> just, you know, and you can ask my wife, she's like, how long did this have to be? You know, and I'm like, look, I can't stop writing now. You know, it, it, what's fascinating about the story, and of course, hopefully your listeners that are listening to a brass, a vintage brass podcast will get this. The story got more and more interesting the farther I, I was able to dive. And we can get into the details, obviously, later. But It's like the Tiger King. Well, you know, the Tiger King is more of a train wreck that you can't stop watching. <laughs> and this is more of an interesting historical, you know, journey through, I guess, through, through what I would call, you know, just kind of, well, it's, it's brass history in America, but it's also, you know, the development of this instrument, euphonium, which, you know, for all intents and purposes, um, is kind of a, well, I mean, I guess all acoustic instruments you could call dinosaurs, but the euphonium really is a fascinating instrument because it's, it's the, it's the horn, it's like the last standing horn in the ring that was you know, a part of all of this uh, brass band movement in the 1820s, 30s, and four, or 30s, 40s, and 50s. In America, they had all these different versions, and the euphonium kind of is the last man standing in the ring that that kind of won the evolutionary king that won, and and that's what we're all playing today. So that, it's, that's that's part of the fascinating story. The other part of the fascinating story is just the the lives of these men that played the instrument, yeah. because some of them were just real characters, and some of them, their training was so fascinating, and how the the instrument evolved in terms of its usage in the band was fascinating. So all these things kind of led me to keep writing until the paper was, you know, like I said, 400 pages long. And, and I, I was very proud of it because unlike 50 years ago, or even unlike 20 years ago, you know, you couldn't find information like this about these individual people out there. It just wasn't available. Mm -hmm. It was there, but it was buried in archives somewhere. But with the, um, the advent of searchable online searchable newspaper databases like the uh, Chronicling America site from the Library of Congress where you can just you know you can put in a term in a search engine and they will give you every newspaper from Washington DC through a different you know for their certain date range that has that word in it so if you search euphonium in the Washington DC newspapers from 1870 to 1890 you're going to get every mention of the word euphonium in those papers and so you can see how much that term was used, who was playing, what solos they were playing, where they were playing throughout a 20 year period. And I mean, that, that alone in terms of data mining, you know, for, for this type of project was an enormous help. And then the other thing was just the, all the ancestry websites, like the, the, um, the, the family history websites that have come up that have access to military records, to census records, to, you know, um, yearbook photos. I mean, everything that has been digitized. I mean, so the amount that's been written that I was able to write versus what was written just in the nineties was, you know, a hundred to one. It was amazing how much more information I could get out of it. And yeah, those yeah. newspaper databases are really invaluable. I mean, cause that's how information was disseminated back then. I mean, there's really no other record of a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're really helpful doing research on, for myself, on, in episode one, I mentioned the band that I played in um, back in Pennsylvania that enlisted as a Civil War band, kind of getting to know that band a little more. All of that information is coming from the newspapers. Yeah, and it was all there before, but there was no way that you were going to sift through 20 years of old newspapers and, to try to find the word euphonium or, you know, the name of your band, you know, but all of a sudden you've got it all there and it's at your fingertips and it takes, you know, 20 minutes and you've got pieces of information that it would have taken months to dig up 
you know, and no one was willing to do that before. <laughs> yeah, months and a lot of traveling to the places where. Well, yeah, gone. and and yeah. It, just, it was it was it was unreasonable, and it was just it was you know unrealistic to, to for anyone to do that, and so and no one had done that. Right. Now, for your research, did you the first gentleman that you talked about in the Marine Band? Did you only talk about the first person that was labeled as a euphonium player, or did you go back into labeled baritone players or even off a collide players? Like how, how early back did your research start? Well, I didn't know how far back I could go um, at the beginning. I was like, well, this is really murky waters here because again, nothing had been written. I mean, the, the, when I was going through college, the, the earliest person I heard about, you know, was, you know, a Harry Whittier, you know, maybe, and they had the double bell euphonium. Um, but, but honestly it was, it was really murky waters. So Luckily, two things came into play with this research. The first thing, like I, we just talked about, was this huge database of early newspapers um, that had these terms like baritone, you know, that well, you could search terms like baritone, sax horn, you know, in these things, and you could bring up these concert programs, because what these bands would do, what the Marine Band would do, is, is they would print their their program for the fall for either the day of the concert, the day of, or the, the day, you know, the concert, the following day, or, you know, in a week, they would print the printed program in the, um, or the chosen program in the newspaper with the soloists and what they were playing, the instruments they were playing. So I was able to find certain soloists that were playing sax horn in the Marine band and baritone in the Marine band and euphonium in the Marine band way before, you know, any mention of them in any of the scores or any other kind of uh, other source material. The other thing that was really amazing was, of course, the Marine Band Library, which is the largest music, you know, band, band library in, in the country, if not the world. They have so many resources, um, scholarly resources in, in, the, in the form of dissertations, mainly that were written in the 1950s and 1970s by people um, about the history of the Marine Band, but there's two in particular that were written um, about Francis Scala, who I think you wanted to ask me about that, about him a little bit later. He was the band director, uh, the leader of the band during the Civil War years, the Lincoln administration. Um, and there's two papers that were written about him and about the library that he left to, well, he left the library of all of his arrangements that he, he made for the Marine Band during his tenure. He was director of the Marine Band from 1855 to 1871. And back then, 99% of all the music that the Marine Band played was were original compositions or original arrangements. Mm -hmm. You couldn't just go down to, I mean, you could go down to a music store and buy stuff, but I, I'm sure he didn't have a budget for that, you know, in the Marine Band. So he just had, they just had to write their own things. But he, the good thing was he was a gifted arranger and a gifted composer. And so, when he died, he, he left the library to his son, who gave who donated to the Library of Congress in the, in the 1950s, actually with an endowment, a, a, a monetary endowment to keep studying and re research on on his father and his father's era. Hmm. So it's still there. And so these two gentlemen, um, uh, Ingalls and I'm, I'm blanking on the other guy's name. Um, I have it right down here. Hold on. Let me check my notes here. It's uh, Ingalls and um, Leclerc, Paul Joseph Leclerc and David Ingalls uh, both wrote dissertations for Catholic University for their doctor degrees, and they wrote it about the Scala Library. And the most important thing they did was is they included all of the parts lists for all the pieces that he wrote. Hmm. And he started writing, he got in the band in the, in the 1840s, 
um, I think 1842 is when he got in. And so he started writing pretty early on, even though he wasn't leader of the band at that time. And so we have all the parts lists. And in those parts lists, you see, among other things, Awful Clyde and baritone. Uh, he never used the word sax horn in any of his arrangements. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but, but that's, that's, those two um, discoveries were the first thing that really showed me that, hey, I can go really far back on this. So did your research go to baritone? It went actually to serpent. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. So what's really cool is there is there's an 1831 um, order, requisition order to the Commandant of the Marine Corps at the time. So I think it was Archibald Henderson at the time. The Commandant of the Marine Corps is, is the head of the Marine Corps underneath the Secretary of the Navy. And this was a requisition order for the Marine Band for, it was an instrument list that they were ordering from a, of a, some sort of instrument purveyor in Baltimore, Maryland. And on, on that instrument list, it handwritten says one serpent. So we know that they ordered a serpent and we can assume that someone in the band played uh, that instrument uh, for, for a time. What's just backing up a little bit, what's fascinating about the Marine Band versus brass bands, which you guys focus on mainly, is that the Marine Band is unique because I think if certain things hadn't happened in the early 20th, early 19th century, it would have been a regular brass band, like just like all the other brass bands that were kind of that popped up in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. Mm -hmm. It would have been a conventional brass band, I, I think. Um, but what happened was is the first job the Marine, of course, if, for your for your listeners who don't know the story, the the full history of the Marine Band. The Marine Band was started by an act of Congress in 1798, and the original act of Congress, this is also when the Marine Corps was reinstated after the Revolutionary War. It became the United States Marine Corps versus the Continental Marine Corps. And in that act, it called for 32 fifers and drummers. Uh, that was it. And it said 32 fifers and drummers to constitute a Marine Band or the Marine Band. So that's how we get our name, and that was our start um, by an act of Congress. That was it. There was no other you know, directions or, or, or pay instructions. In fact, the band at the beginning was paid out of the pockets of the officers. Hmm. So whenever the officers would want a concert or a ceremony, they'd have to pay the members of the band out of pocket that we had no set wage from the government. That actually became pretty common for uh, regimental brass bands uh, during the mid and late civil war. Also. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. They would have the, uh, the, the upper leadership or sometimes donors from the town where the regiment was formed they would be the ones to help uh, sustain the band financially yeah so it seemed like it was a tradition that held on mm -hmm. and that, that tradition actually held on all the way until the civil war which we can get to in a second but the lincoln administration but so at the beginning they were just fifers and drummers um and congress didn't give them any any kind of funding for other instruments though that's that's pretty much what happened as, as far as i can tell around the turn of the century, they started transitioning to more of a, uh, you know, harmony music uh, instrumentation, you know, so we had clarinets, flutes, oboes, horn, you know, including, and then also percussion. But according to the US government, they were just, they were still billeted as fifers and drummers. That was, mm. there was no delineation at that point. Mm. And that lasted for quite some time. But what's interesting is, is that during the Jefferson administration, the first White House job we did was on New Year's Day, 1801 for John Adams. And that's right after he lost the election to Thomas Jefferson. But Abigail and him were throwing a New Year's Day party at the White House, which hadn't even been finished. It was still under construction at that point. Hmm. And they invited the Marine Band to come. We don't know what instrumentation they had at that point. Um, 
But that was their first gig at the White House. And then when he left office in March and Thomas Jefferson came in as the new president, Thomas Jefferson um, was an avid music lover. He played the violin. He loved music. And th there's part of this that is um, colloquial and there's part of this that's actually documented. So uh, the part of it that I don't think is documented is, is that basically Jefferson was not happy with, with the Marine Band in terms of maybe quality or instrumentation. I don't know. Um, but he, he asked the commandant of the Marine Corps at the time, whose name was William Ward Burroughs, and to, to actually dispatch an officer, and we know the name of the officer, his name was Captain John Hall, to Italy. And at the time, Italian musicians, I guess, were known to be very you know, well-trained and, and prestigious. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to basically go on a mission, a Marine Corps government-funded mission to enlist musicians, to Italian-trained musicians to augment the ranks of the Marine Band. And so he did it. He, he left on the trip. But the, the problem was, is that while he was gone, of course, you know, the voyages took so long back then, the commandant of the Marine Corps changed and the new commandant, Frank Warden, had no idea that this had happened, this was going on. <laughs> he got dispatches back saying from John Hall saying, hey, we got, I can't remember the, the exact number of Italian musicians, but they, they recruited a, a good number of them along with their families on the mm -hmm. ship, promising them jobs in America. And so they came and he got this dispatch saying, hey, we got all these Italians coming. And he's like, whoa, cease and desist. I, I, I don't know what you're talking about here. I don't want Italian musicians at the, at, the, at the Marine Barracks. And of course, Marine Barracks in D.C. had just been, it was just being built at that point. Is that where you guys are now? That yeah, one? Well, yeah, we, we're, that's our, we're in the annex next to it. But that's, yeah, the band was there for 200 years. So. Mm -hmm. It's the Marine Barracks at 8th and I Street. That was the first permanent installation for Marines in the U.S. Got you. So it was just being built. And so by the time they got there, Frank Warden was like, look, I don't want these guys. They can't speak any English. You know, I mean, this is a serious problem. They're, they're, not, regular, they're not regular Marines. We can't use them. So part of them, as the story goes, <laughs> part of them just took one look at DC, which was a swamp at the time, and said, didn't even want to get off the boat. They said, no, we're, we're out of here. So they went back to Italy. Yikes. But the other part stayed, and I think part of them worked um, – on the building of the barracks. And what was fascinating is, I guess, I don't know why, maybe it was, you know, um, a little xenophobia, or maybe it was the, the language barrier, but at, at some, but, or maybe it was just Frank Warden saying, these guys aren't Marines, but for a time, there were two Marine bands. And I actually, I've seen early articles in early newspapers in, in DC that talk about the two Marine bands. There's the Italian Marine band and the, just the Marine band. Hmm. So over time, they split into two. But then eventually they came back. But what's what's interesting about that is is it brought over fantastically trained musicians that actually became the backbone. These Italians became the backbone of band leadership for the next fifty years, mm -hmm. which is really interesting because what that did is it brought Europeans into the mix that had a very specific vision of what a band should be, and it was not a brass band. Right. It was a band with a full complement of woodwinds and brasses. Why, so, did, why did Europeans have that, that greater sense of the ensemble than over here? Why did that develop differently when the, the instruments were being developed you know, at the same time? That's a good question. I, I, I don't know if I can give you a complete answer. I, I do know, I, I mean, I'm assuming that because they had more of a history of classical music, you know, they had the, they had the, the harmony music section of, of the orchestra, you know, they had the two oboes, the two flutes, the two bassoons, you know, the, the, the two horns that had been, you know, established in Europe, at least in Germany, you know, as the symphonists were, were the, you know, the symphony orchestra was slowly evolving 
and that the symphony in terms of instrument instrumentation was had evolved by that point. Yeah, and the way I understand it is that harmony music ensemble was sometimes referred to as a band right. in in Europe. So um, especially the Italian and the German immigrants who came over to the United States, that's where um, you know you kind of had both the American brass bands of just brass and these. Um, Italian and German immigrants who are coming over with their idea. And that's why you see kind of a mixing of the two ensembles in the United States. And the brass band never really kind of took over a complete hold on the, the band term and what you think of when you think of a band. I mean, you get kind of the mix of brass and woodwinds that we have now. At least that's the way I make sense of it in my head. As, as well, how that, it, that must have been, it must have been something like that because throughout the, the 19th century, even as the brass band movement gained enormous popularity, even in Washington, DC, you know, the, the regimental brass band movement, military brass band, the, the, the Marine bands stuck to their guns. They, they never, they never abandoned their, their brass band or their, their, you know, their wind, woodwind section. And, and a lot of their players, including Scala himself was a clarinet player. Hmm. And so, you know, they, they, they always had a complement of woodwinds and, and two, what, what, all, what, what the European band leaders brought over that the American band leaders didn't do was an absolute love for the masters. So, so especially opera. Yeah. So you'll see in the 1840s and 50s and 60s, throughout Scala's, you know, Scala's um, tenure especially, the band is always doing something by, you know, Donizetti or by Verdi or by uh, Bellini, you know, that's always, or Liszt, you know, it's always the European masters. And what's interesting about that is that that tradition continued um, all the way until today, where the Marine band is known to be a lot more, I'm not conservative is not the right word, but it's a lot more rooted in classical transcription and classical um, the large classical works versus more popular fare. Yeah. And that was the big differentiation between the Marine Band and other brass bands of, say, the Civil War period later, was mm -hmm. that the, the, the Marine Band just didn't do as, as much popular stuff as the, the brass bands. The brass band did all pop stuff, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know the, the, the Yankee Doodle, that kind of stuff, you know, folk songs, popular ballads of the day. But the Marine Band would always, I mean, they did that stuff, but they always, for the White House, and maybe that was the differentiation because, we, we played at the White House so much and they didn't want to hear a lot of that stuff because they had, you know, heads of state coming over from Europe. Yeah, yeah. So we always did the formal stuff, you know, the Bellini and, and, and actually, we're going to talk about this a little bit later as we get farther in the history. That actually helped the, the, the evolution of the film because when Joseph, when um, Francis Scala was writing his transcriptions of these opera duets, because he'd always transcribe an aria, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You do an aria duet between a soprano and, and a tenor. Well, you didn't have the singers. You didn't have any singers. So he would do a soprano cornet for the, uh, for the soprano part. And then he would use a baritone to play the transcribed tenor part. Hmm. So all of a sudden, you've got a baritone in front of the band. But to get back to your earlier question, so the serpent was obviously the first documented instrument that I found. But going through newspapers, I also found that the band through the Scala parts list, I found they used an awful Clyde. So they definitely used an awful Clyde. Uh, and uh, I found one, at least one arrangement or two arrangements, one by Scala and one by his predecessor, um, Trae, who was director of the band before, just before Scala, that used awful Clyde parts. Hmm. And I actually found, I couldn't believe I found this, but I found an old newspaper article saying, giving us, giving me the name of an awful Clyde player in the band. 
Nice. And his name was Antonio Pons, which is interesting because, again, another Italian who actually became leader of the band um, sometime after. This is before Francis Scala became leader mm -hmm. of the band. But he, he started out as an awful Clyde player in the 1840s. Um, they were still using Alpha Clyde until at least 1848. I know that because of the dates on the on the arrangement parts from the Scala Library. There's probably some overlap by that point, right? I'm sure there was. And again, that that's that's the murky area. Um, but um, he was at least playing Alpha Clyde until 1848 before he moved on to, to drum major of the band and the leader of the band. Those two positions were different. Drum major and leader of the band were different as they are today. Um, What's the difference between those? Well, the, the leader of the band used to be a fife major. Like I said before, for a long time, it was just fife and drum, fife major and uh, fifes and drums. So there was a fife major and a drum major. And the drum major was always the leader of the band default between the two, even though their uniforms were identical, their rank were, was identical. Um, but in, in during, during the uh, Lincoln administration, as I said before, everything got reorganized and the, the, the term fife major was dropped because no one, they knew the band didn't play just fifes and drums anymore. So um, the Fife Major became the designated, and this is the title, leader of the band. And that, that title was, was the official military title of the band leader. His rank, his rank pay was that of a sergeant, but he didn't have a separate rank. His rank name was leader of the band for years hmm. um, before it was finally changed to an officer rank. Um, but what's interesting is, is that we have all of the enlistment records for the Marine Corps, for the band, up back to 1798. So I, I, I used to go in and look at all the band members' names. And what's tantalizing is that you know that all the players that played baritone or euphone, they're all there right in front of your face. There's no parts listed or instruments listed that, you know, on what they played. So you, you'll never know. And it's just, oh, yeah. that used to drive me insane because they're right, in, you can see their names. It's right there. But um, yeah, so the first person that I found who actually played um, a tenor sax horn, which was later called a baritone, uh, and we, we can get in the terminology how they use that a little bit later, but was a guy named Lewis Weber. And what's interesting about Lewis Weber and then the, another guy who played baritone, John Prosperi, about the same time, Lewis Weber got in in, 18, in 1850. Um, both of those guys and other, many others were graduates of what became known as the Marine Band Apprentice Program which was really fascinating because we don't know exactly when it started sometime in the early 1800s, but what it was, was a, a pipeline for young boys uh, in DC to basically be joined to the Marine band, almost like indentured servants. It was pretty close to that. Um, their that fathers, what, what'd you say? Isn't that what your, your guys' number one star did also? Didn't Sousa come in as a drummer yeah. boy through that program? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And, and the, the program lasted until the early 1900s when, hundreds when I'm sure labor laws were passed and this can't have boys working in the military. <laughs> but, um, so, so they would bring boys in as, I think as young as maybe 12 to 11, 12, and their fathers would sign them up and they would basically have a, I think a 15 year apprenticeship, um, wow. 10 to 15 years, something like that. And they were housed at the barracks though. Some boys lived so close, they could just live at home. They were given pay and deductions from their pay were, were made for their schooling and for their clothes, you know, room and board, hmm. but they were trained by the drum major of the Marine band to be either drummers and or fifers. If they were really good, they were trained on actual instruments, you know, regular acoustic instruments of the band. And they were allowed to audition for the band at the end of their, uh, um, 
apprenticeship. If they weren't as if they weren't good enough to make the Marine band, then they were just used as ceremonial fifers and drummers out in the fleet. Mm-hmm. And bugle be, also was was added to that. Mm-hmm. So they would be de- they would be deployed on ships out to, in the fleet to to play ceremonies on ships, you know, wherever Marines were present or you know uh, wherever there was a camp of Marines. Mm-hmm. And so Lewis Weber was one. John Prosperi was one. Um, like you said, John Philip Sousa was one. Uh, there's another guy that came in later, um, William Grosskirth. Um, there was a lot of these guys whose fathers were in the Marine Band. Um, John Prosperi's father, John Francis Prosperi, was in the Marine Band. Who, who it was, it was like a family business for these guys. You know, <laughs> they did it. Their sons did it. Their sons' sons did it. And it was the same with the Sousas. You know, Antonio Sousa was John Philip Sousa's father. He was in the Marine Band. John Philip Sousa's brother was in the marine band you know it's just it was that's what you did they lived in they all lived in southeast washington dc and that it was like a family of plumbers you know that but they were they were musicians that's exactly what happened they were all very down to earth that was the trade and you learned your trade and for for poor families at the time it must have been a a godsend because it's like okay you're going to take my kid you're going to feed him you're going to clothe him you're going to school him and we get paid. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Here, take them. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah. I can imagine it was a great deal for them. So Lewis Weber was the first, and he was a really interesting character because he was a very talented musician. He was a, primarily a violinist and a double bassist. Um, and to get to kind of the subject of your show, he also did what many current and, and former Marine bands guys did in the 19th century after they left. And sometimes when they were still in the band, they formed their own brass bands on the side. And so Lewis Weber, um, Prosperi did this, John Prosperi's father did this, a guy named William Withers did this, who's also a member of the band at the time. They would leave the Marine band after a time, after their apprenticeship, after they, they played in the band for a while, and they would form their own cornet bands that would hire out throughout the city. Which is ironic, the irony is, is that they would use mainly guys from the Marine band. <laughs> you know, so it really was the Marine band, but under a different name. Yeah, yeah. And they, they would do they would do cruises. You know, you, you'd hire a band to, to be on a ship to go down the Potomac River to Mount Vernon or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, they would do picnics, a lot of picnics. They would do these things where they would you would hi- uh, public speakers or politicians would hire them to go. P- basically, they would set up under their window of their house and they would play music to draw a crowd. And then the politician would come out and give a speech. Mm-hmm in order to get reelected or a speech on a certain topic. You know, that was the days before any kind of television or radio. That was mass media. Mm-hmm. So the bands were very important in that, in that effort, which I thought was really fascinating. Very but um, Lewis Weber was the first, and the first uh, documented baritone range uh, performance, uh, instrument performance that I ever found. So he was playing a tenor sax horn, this is as named in the press, in 1855, um, it was a duet with a coronet. They're playing a, an arrangement by Scala um, of, a, I think, a Bellini aria. Hmm. And that was the first, that's the, that's the earliest um, known newspaper article of a baritone range in, instrument being featured as a soloist. Can you go through the, uh, briefly, the, the evolution? I know you mentioned the serpent earlier, and it's dawning yeah. on me that some people might not be super familiar with what even a serpent is. Well, you know, a serpent is a basically, uh, it does have, I think later iterations had keys, but mainly they were just bored holes in a, in a wooden serpent-shaped instrument. It's like an S-shape. Usually it was bound by leather with holes in it. And, um, you know, it was, it was like a flute in that way, but you had a mouthpiece that you did make, you made vibrations with, and then you controlled the, the, the pitch, the, the length of the instrument with the holes. 
and that's regarded as being like the earliest predecessor to yes. these low instruments, right? And then the keyed brasses came in in the, in the 1820s, you know, so you had the awful Clyde and, and the keyed bugle. Um, and so that's basically what the Marine Band used. And a lot of, um, you know, bands, other brass bands in the, mil in the U.S. military started using those at that time. But what happened that I found, what, one thing that happened in the 1840s that was really seminal to the evolution of the euphonium in the Marine Band, and I think in the country, because by, by the 1830s, you had uh, companies like Dodworth and stuff that were making valved brasses, you know, rotary valved brasses, which were either upright or over the shoulder. Um, but what happened in 1849 is that the Diston family came to America. So John Diston was a British brass player. He'd played in the band of King George IV in England, and he had a very talented family. Uh, he had basically three sons that were very talented brass players. He had a daughter that sung, and they, had, they were touring throughout Europe on their British-made instruments, or maybe, I can't remember what the maker of their instruments were, but they met Adolf Sachs at the time in Paris. And Sachs was, was doing a, a demonstration of his instruments. And um, uh, John Diston basically said, I would love you to make us custom-made bellfront brass instruments. We'll take them around the world. So Sachs jumped at the chance because Distons were famous at that point. And so they took, they, he made them four bellfront brass instruments uh, in different voices. One of, one of John's sons, George Diston, played a B-flat baritone uh, sax horn and that's what they toured with and they came to the United States in 1849 they did a huge tour of the states and on March 3rd 1849 they came to Washington DC they played at a saloon or is it a salon the 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 the, the, the spelling in, in these newspaper articles is kind of variable so I never could tell if it was a saloon or a salon maybe it was, let's just say it was a salon you know it was up it was an upper class thing right and um <laughs> And they played a concert and they played multiple times for multiple days in DC. And, and I can't, there's no direct evidence that it influenced the, the, the instrumentation of the Marine Band, but it definitely influenced the trajectory of brass instruments in America. After that tour, all of a sudden the term sax horn was introduced to America. And what's interesting is after that tour, a lot of local regimental brass bands, that, there was one down in Staunton, Virginia, that um, made direct orders to Sachs himself for French-made saxhorns, hmm. and the the name saxhorn became completely uh, ubiquitous for any kind of brass instrument. It was all all saxhorns. It's like any kind of conical a, instrument, like a Q-tip or a Vaseline or something. Yeah, yeah, or a Kleenex. You know, Band -Aid. Like, yeah. <laughs> it became it became that's what the instrument became known as, and so that the. the the or the kind of the, the evolution from from serpent to Ophelclyde now kind of revolved around three different instruments, but they had three. They were very similar. So you had the tenor sax horn, you had the baritone sax horn, and you had the B flat bass sax horn. And of course, um, all most of the major catalogs of the 1850s have these three um, different models in them. Um, and so, and they all had different parts. And I got this information from uh, a great uh, old article that uh, Mark Elrod had about, it was an old manual, how to set up your own brass band. Hmm. This was from the 1850s. And it talked about the different, uh, different uses of the three instruments. So the tenor horn or the tenor, tenor sax horn was used to, uh, to basically double the uh, cornet at the octave in terms of scoring. So this is how to write for these instruments. 
So you, you'd use it to fill out the mid-range uh, right and of, the, of the cornet, you know, so the cornet can't get that low. So you fill out the mid-range by doubling at the octave, you know, when you're playing a melody with the tenor sax horn. It had the smallest of all those bores of the, the instrument. Yeah, I was going to say, this is going from most uh, cylindrical to most conical, right? Yeah, the bore, yeah, the bore gets, they're all, they're all uh, the same length. Yeah. But they all have different, but the bore size gets wider and wider. So the sound gets deeper and deeper. So um, that, that's the tenor sax horn. The, the, the baritone is mainly, is the soloist, soloist, it's the soloist instrument of the band. So all the solos that I mentioned before, they're given to the baritone. Um, and then the bass sax horn is, was known as the top voice of the tuba family. So it was the B flat bass, then the E flat bass, then the double B flat bass. Sometimes they have a double E flat bass, but usually it was just those three. And, and so um, those were the three roles of that instrument. And I, I noticed that the evolution of what we now know as the modern euphonium was the eventual coalescing of those three instruments into one, one single horn. And when did that term start getting used, euphonium? Uh, that didn't get started used in, in America. That didn't, wasn't used until the 1880s, really. Hmm. Um, did you want to go on to that, or did you want to talk about more about the Civil War and about Scala? I know that was one of your questions that you wanted to talk. Yeah, about. Yeah, we can get to Scala a little bit later. I think we can we can finish out this uh, this okay. evolution yeah, of this instrument. Yeah, sure. So, really, throughout the 1860s, the in the Marine Band, as far as the Marine Band goes, the first baritone solo that I was able to find was from 18 the 1850s somewhere. It was a Scala arrangement of a uh, a Donizetti aria. Um, it was uh, like. Uh, Farino, I can't remember the, the opera's name, but uh, it was a baritone solo within the band. And um, I actually played that on that army band uh, um, recital that I did. Hmm. And um, it, it's a really great little solo and it's very clearly marked in the parts that it was a, uh, a, a baritone solo. So that's the first one. So the 1850s marked the very first time in the Marine band anyway, that the that the baritone was was used as a soloist and called a baritone, so I'm assuming it was a baritone, even though I have no proof of exactly what type of instrument they used. And I think that's one thing inter that's interesting to mark. You know, we always wonder how the word baritone got used as a, as a default word for euphonium. You know, we always we always both those terms in America are interchangeable, where that's not the case in other countries. I think part of it was because the baritone was the solo instrument of, of the band. And I think that that just stuck with American audiences long before the word euphonium came in. Baritone was, and so when you see a, an instrument, a conical low brass instrument in front of the band in the 19th century, they'd say that's a baritone because that's the solo instrument. Hmm. So throughout the, the Civil War, those were the three basic, tenor, baritone, and bass were the three basic voices. After the Civil War and when Lewis um, Gilmore started uh, becoming, uh, not Gilmore, um, Patrick Gilmore? That Patrick Gilmore, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Patrick Gilmore started becoming very famous with his concert band. He even he even ditched the brass band mm -hmm. in, in favor of a concert band. Of course, the Marine Band still had a concert band with woodwinds and things. So he stopped the, the whole tenor and, and baritones. This name Saxhorn started going out of favor. Mm -hmm. um, and so then you started having just a baritone. You had a tenor horn. You still had tenor horn, baritone, and... B flat bass at that point in all the in all the catalogs that I found um, in the 1870s. Then um, what was happening in England though that at the time the same time is also very relevant. So the Distin family after they did the touring, they went back to England and started their own company, their 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 uh, 
an instrument company importing sax horns. And we don't know exactly what happened, but they had a falling out with sax because they started marketing his horns under their label, a distant horn. So sax got mad at them and stopped using them. The other thing that they did, though, the distant company is they bought the patent from Ferdinand Sommer for his original euphonion, which what he was calling euphonion back in the 1840s, the one that he brought over to play for the, the, the Grand Exposition for Queen Victoria. There's actually a picture of that somewhere. You can look it up online of Ferdinand Sommer playing his euphonion for Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Um, so they bought the patent for that from Ferdinand Sommer because he had been touring around England soloing with that instrument. And they've also bought the name. So they started manufacturing instruments called euphonions from the 1850s, at least, in England. And of course, we, you know, in, that's about when the brass band movement started going full blast in England. And so the euphonion started becoming very you know, popular in, in Great Britain. And how euphonion became euphonium, I'm not quite sure. I know, I think they used both terms in England, mm -hmm. but up in, as late as the 1890s, I've seen in, 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 in boozy arrangements, euphonium arrangements, they were still using the term euphonion. Hmm. So it didn't die early on. It was, it was kept for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing that happened is, is that these British bands throughout the 19, 1860s and 70s started coming to America and touring. So the, the, the term euphonium, euphonion started being heard. And when Distance sold out to Boozy in the 1860s, 1868, I think is when he sold his, his company. It was actually Distance son who sold. Um, Boozy started, an office, started a shop in New York City. So we know that euphoniums or euphonions probably were being sold in New York. So an instrument called that um, had arrived on the shores of, of America by, you know, as early as the 1870s, maybe. Mm -hmm. We don't know the exact dates. Um, but what really got it started was um, the uh, Simon Mantia's uh, teacher. And for some reason, I'm blanking on his name. Can you guys remember? It was Raffaello. I couldn't remember that all of a sudden. Yeah, it's yeah, Raffaello. Raffaello. Oh, yeah, that guy, Raffaello. Yeah. <laughs> Joseph Raffaello. So what happened was, is that Lewis, as Patrick Gilmore was starting his band and he was looking for, he was always looking for great soloists. And the story goes that he was in Paris and he found this guy, uh, Joseph Raffaello playing with the King's Band of Italy. This is in the 1870s. Mm -hmm. We don't know what kind of horn he was playing, but when he came over the States, the very first article that I was able to find, the earliest one I was able to find from New York was, was Raffaello playing on what was called a double baritone trombone or a double trombone baritone, something like that. Hmm. I, I'm, I'm guessing or surmising at that, that he probably, that Patrick Gilmore probably saw him playing that in Europe. And that's probably why he hired him. Um, he probably said to himself, not only is this guy good, but he's playing on an instrument that I've never seen before. And of course, what duplex instruments, you know, in, in, instruments that have more than one bell, have been manufactured. They were they were manufactured in Europe for many years before that. Um, Sachs had manufactured them. A guy named Poletti, uh, an Italian manufacturer, had also done those. And maybe maybe he was playing one of Poletti's instruments. We don't know. But I'm assuming that Gilmore, basically, as any good American showman at the time would have said, that's box office. So he, he saw a guy <laughs> playing a weird. He's playing a weird instrument, and he was playing it well. So he's like, I need to get this guy yeah. over here. <laughs> So he brought he he hired him away from the King's Band of Italy, brought him over, and Joseph Raffaello. And this is in 1882, I think. Joseph Raffaello became um, 
the first known person to play a double-belled baritone instrument in America. So that was 1882. So fast forward to 1889 and the Gilmore band is the most famous band in America, mm-hmm. you know, apart from the Marine band, but the Marine band can't do, can't, can't tour like the Gilmore band could tour. And the Marine band was a military, you know, organization while the, the Gilmore band was, even though it had the, the name like 22nd regiment, New York regiment or whatever it was, that was just for show. They, they weren't really a military ensemble, you know, so they, they were, they were getting paid a ton of money. In fact, I, I found, I found a, a, a old reference to what Raffaello was making. He was making like $70 a week or something like that. Back and for that time, yeah. it was a huge amount of money. And I, I looked up the salary for the Marine Band. It was like a dollar a week. I mean, it was so <laughs> pathetic. You know, I think street sweepers were at the time in D.C. were making about as much as we were. And, and so that shows you, you know, the, the disparity there. And the reason the Marine Band was able to, to even get top talent was the promise that they could do outside jobs, which is what made them the most money. Mm. But Raffaello had that horn and it really helped him and it helped the baritone become popular as a solo instrument in the 1880s. Mm. What's also interesting is that if you look at the newspaper articles from 1880 to 1900, the... Um, the word euphonium starts getting uh, used more and more. Uh, and mainly that's due to uh, the entrance of CG Khan into the mix. So Khan mm. uh, started manufacturing instruments, I think in the 1880s, I'm sure I'm not exact on those dates. I might have them in, in the paper. I didn't write them down in my notes, but he, he started wanting, he saw Gilmore's band, he saw Raffaello's horn and he wanted to have a patented American version of the instrument. And so in, I think it was in 1887 or eight, that's when he came out with the double bell euphonium. And he used the word, he, he called it a euphonium. The euphonium was the top of the line. The other ones were baritones or t- he had baritones, he had tenor horns, but the euphoniums were the top of the line. If you wanted a top two, two bell instrument, it was the con euphonium, double bell euphonium. And so um, that was, I think, 1887, 1888, time frame and so from that moment on and of course William Whittier also of uh, Gilmore's band and Raffaello they all they started calling it calling everything euphonium all the press started calling it a euphonium and in the marine band the guy at the time was was um, uh, let's see Henry Schultz was his name uh, he was the euphonium soloist baritone soloist before 1889 afterwards in all the newspapers he's billed as euphonium solo so the term was adopted fairly quickly. I, and I, I have to assume that it's partly due that because of Gilmore's band and how, I mean, they were the Michael Jackson, you know, of their day yeah. in terms of popularity and their, their lead, one of their lead soloists was playing a double bell euphonium. And then after 1889, they were playing con double bell euphoniums. And so, you know, that, that kind of put and put everything into the, public consciousness and the popularity of town bands was also on the rise as well. So everyone was looking to get a double bell euphonium. What's interesting too, getting back to the evolution, all that a double bell euphonium is, is a combination of a B flat bass and a B flat baritone horn. So as I said before, you know, the, the history of the horn, uh, you know, is kind of the, the coming together of, of the tenor baritone and bass. Well, with a double bell euphonium, you, you have a literal, like a physical representation of that mm-hmm. coming together. Hmm. And, and so the double bell euphonium, euphonium kind of was born and it, the Marine band adopted it. Um, 
when Sousa became the director of the Marine Band in 1880, um, he signed, at some point in his tenure, he signed a, an exclusive contract with Con Music Instruments. Mm -hmm. So all the instruments of the band, or at least the ones that he advertised for Con with their principal players were Con instruments. Mm -hmm. So the guy who replaced uh, Henry Schultz as the principal euphonium in the band was Joseph Giovannini in 1892. And that's right as, as the Marine Band started to tour under Sousa. And so in all the, on all the backs of the programs, they had con testimonials. And one of those was for the con double bell euphonium by Joseph Giovannini. And mm -hmm. you can look up online, the Marine Band, uh, if you just Google Marine Band tour, you can see a, a really great picture of the entire Marine Band, black and white picture from their 1892 tour with the two euphonium players in the front row. Mm -hmm. And there's Joseph Giovannini with his con double bell sitting right there in the front row. Awesome. What's also interesting is that in the Marine Band, we still kept the differentiation between a euphonium and a baritone. But by the 1890s, the only differentiation was that a euphonium had two bells and a baritone just had one bell. And you can see it in that picture that I just mentioned. Hmm. So the other guy was named William Sandelman, who actually became the director after, in the 1890s after um, Sousa's successor got fired. Uh, that's, that's another story. <laughs> but um, he was only playing a single bell baritone and that differentiation remains today. So on, on all the music we have two, we play with two euphoniums in the band because Sousa started that tradition in the Marine band using two euphoniums. Um, and one of the folders is always labeled baritone and one of the folders is always labeled euphonium, even to this day in the Marine band as tradition. So that's where we got the double bell euphonium and the double bell euphonium stayed as the preeminent solo instrument in all of the, golden age bands for the next 70 years. It wasn't until World War II, really, that um, that started to change. And of course, we know what happened. You know, we know the story of Harold Brash um, bringing over a, a single bell boozy, uh, compensating at that point, euphonium, a four valve compensating euphonium. And of course, in the 1870s, the compensating system was, was developed by David Blakely to figure out how to figure to, to, to eliminate the terrible tuning problems of brass instruments. You know, you couldn't, it's hard to add more tubing to a third valve slide. It's going to be, you know, three feet long past the bottom bow of your instrument yeah. to, to make those, the notes flatter, especially the one, two, and three combination. But Blakely, you know, basically added that tubing in different, different places by extending each of the valve pistons and, and hiding the tubing in a very, you know, unique way and patenting it. So Boozy already had that technology and it came over big time after World War II when the principal euphonium of the Navy band, Harold Brash, picked one up um, from one of the Navy bands from England had come over from uh, with uh, Winston Churchill to visit President Roosevelt at the time during the war. And he said, this is so much better than a double bell euphonium. And uh, that, was, that was it, that was the death knell. And then his student, uh, Arthur Lehman, who was principal euphonium of the Marine Band, uh, who, who would become, uh, in 1956, ordered five or four brand new Boozian, at that point, Boozian Hawks instruments. And that was, I think it was that same year that Khan, or around that time that Khan finally ceased all production of the double bell. King was the last holdout. I think they stopped production of their double bells like in the 60s, early 60s. But um, that's when the compensating, from the 1950s on, the compensating British model of euphonium basically ruled. There were other different variations, like the Bent Bell American euphoniums were still in uh, up until the 70s. Um, 
But then in 1978 or 79, that's when the Blakely 100-year patent ran out, or it was a 99-year patent on the compensating system ran out. Mm -hmm. And so all the makers, so that's when you see Wilson come in, that's when you see Yamaha come in, Hirschbrenner comes in, and then all of a sudden, you, all these guys from that generation in the 1970s and early 80s, um, Luke Spiros, Brian Bowman, Glenn Call, all these guys start experimenting with these new horns. And at that point, you know, the, any kind of American made horn is pretty much out, you know, and, and Wilson will all, from that little arms race there in the late seventies, Wilson emerged kind of the victor throughout the 1980s and nineties, even to the day, most of American military band players play on a Wilson. Mm, all three um, <laughs> yeah. And that's mostly due to, to, to Brian Bowman, uh, who is our teacher and who's my teacher and, and Chris's teacher. And, who uh, was principal of the Navy band and principal of the Air Force band, um, who, who developed the Wilson and just toured around the country, kind of like the Distons did, and um, really popularized the instrument. So, but That's in crazy. terms of getting from the serpent till today, <laughs> there you go. You, yeah, you've just gotten a, a lot of thumbnail sketch. Yeah, yeah. So, that's going to be a, a reference for people's dissertations. You just gave everybody the, yeah, well, the, you know, the answer for. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot more to it, too. I tried to write some notes before going on here, and I, was, I had to stop. I'm like, there's just too much information. I, I was like, there's no way I can fit this in. But in the thumbnail, that's, that's basically it. And as much as we, as euphonium players, just wish the double bell euphonium really had not happened. Um, <laughs> you know, it was so in, impractical. It was, it was a show. It was, it was a shtick. You know, it really was. It was a shtick. It's I mean, it's interesting. On, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, Khan tried to bill it as this really cool thing that if you have a small band, the little bell can be the, the, the you know, can help with the trombone sound. The big bell can help with the, but it's, it was, it was a shtick. It was, it was a marketing ploy. And the euphonium players at the time knew it. They never used their little bell. Simon Mantia, who was principal euphonium of the Sousa band, he never used that little bell ever. Not that we know of. And so, you know, it was, it was, it was just, it was useless. And so when the, when the boozies came in, everyone was like, thank heaven. This is, <laughs> this is like a, this looks like a serious instrument. And so as much as we just poo poo the, the double bell though, we all go out and buy them you know, because they, they, they look cool. If it hadn't been for the double bell, if it hadn't been for Raffaello and, 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 and Simon Mantia and those guys that got out front with that instrument and the, the composers that wrote for it and, and just the, the uniqueness of it, I don't know if the euphonium would still be here. Hmm. I mean, it might be it's some in some iteration, you know, like is a historic instrument, kind of like the sax horn. But in terms of where we're at now, um, I don't know. I don't know if it would be. I, I think it gave us a notoriety, and it gave us a, a toehold. I'll, I'll, I'll give it that. It didn't. It, we're not. We're not the trumpet. We're not the trombone, in terms of cultural significance. But. Of all, because of all the press that the double bell euphonium and the likes of Simon Mantia and all the other guys that around his time in the golden age of bands gave that instrument, it gave us a toehold in musical culture of the time. And I think that toehold held us over <laughs> until today. And, and of course, people like Brian Bowman, of all, all, of course, all the Europeans, you know, since the world has gotten a lot smaller in, in you know, in the, in the recent recent years you know obviously the euphonium has blossomed to much more than that but to more than the band culture but i think it kept us going i think the euphonium kept us going through the lean years of the mid 20th century when bands were out orchestras were in and especially their vietnam years when you know bands were military bands were really out you know that kind of a thing so yeah, yeah. 
I think it's important and I think we, we owe it a lot, even though we want to disown it sometimes. It's interesting how like it's, it was the primary instrument and featured instrument for over 50 years. And then when we see one today at a tuba Christmas event, we always think, man, that guy's weird kind of thing. Like it's so, yeah. it's so foreign for us to, to so see those foreign. now. But they were, that was it. And that was what people, whatever the euphonium had meant before Khan picked it, you know, named his instrument, the WW euphonium, whatever it meant, it didn't matter from 1899, 1889 to the 1940s, the euphonium in America was the double bell. Mm-hmm. That's it. And so, you know, for better or for worse, and that's how the euphonium, and that's another reason why we should be grateful to the double bell is it got the word euphonium into the American lexicon. Mm-hmm. Um, right. and, and it wasn't a boozy. It was, it was a double bell. And that's what Americans saw as a, as, as a, as a double bell. And maybe that's another reason why people call baritones starting from the 1960s is because it only had one bell. And so the old guys that were used to seeing double bell euphoniums and single bell baritones said, well, that's a baritone referring to the boozy euphonium. I don't know, mm-hmm. but um, it's interesting. And then just as one final side note on this euphonium history, um, I have written down that it's often cited that the first fully composed through composed composition for euphonium was written in 1872 by Amalcari Ponchielli, the concerto pork flacorno basso. Yes. Do, do you know... Can you briefly explain what the Flacorno Basso is and maybe how that fits into this uh, large timeline that we kind of just went over? Yeah, well, I mean, the Flacorno Basso, unfortunately, is, is a more of a generic term. It just means bass horn, you know. Um, it, it doesn't mean it's, it's not as specific as, say, euphonium or tenor, tenor sax horn, you know. It's just mm-hmm. a bass horn. And I, I, I would assume that it, it corresponds roughly to a, a B-flat bass that would have been found in brass bands in the 1870s. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is, is that the B-flat bass by the 1870s in America, at any rate, um, was considered almost obsolete. They're like, look, if you've got tubas and you've got baritones, why do you need a B-flat bass? But the B-flat bass is what our modern euphoniums are closest to. Mm-hmm. It really is. Um, we, we don't, we are, 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 the bore size of our modern euphoniums is more closely to that than a, than a baritone or certainly not a tenor horn, mm-hmm. you know? And so what's interesting, it's fascinating to me that they even, they said it was useless, but then a hundred years later, that's all we're playing. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, and, um, but in terms of Ponchielli, I don't, I, you know, I don't think anyone knows exactly what they were using at mm-hmm. the time. I mean, maybe some, there's a Italian brass historian that you guys could have on, you know, that would be able to tell you exactly what the brass instrumentation was in, in Italian bands in the 1870s. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the, the Italians were, were, were extremely influential in the development of the euphonium in America because in the 1880s, because bands were so popular, all of these Italian musicians knew that they could, they could, they, they could make a, a good amount of money touring. And so all these Italian bands started coming over to America and a lot of the Italian musicians stayed, you know, like Raffaello, um, Mantia, you know, even to Falcone, you know, Leonard and, and Nicholas Falcone that came over in the early 1900s, you know, who went on to become the two band directors of Michigan State and University of Michigan. And Leonard Falcone was one of the preeminent euphonium players and teachers in the, in the mid 20th century. They came over, you know, all. And if you look at a list of the, the main soloists of all the main bands in the in the uh, golden age of bands like Creator's band and, and Liberati's band, they all were Italians. I mean, mm-hmm. all the names were, were, were Italian. Mm-hmm. All the top lists of, of CG cons artists were all Italians, you know, and of course Mantilla was the number one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the Italian 
in influence on on the euphonium was is undeniable i mean mm -hmm. it's it's if it hadn't been for them there would be no double bell euphonium because rafaela brought it over yeah and mm -hmm. if it hadn't been for mantia and his his like i don't think the and, and their their amazing ability and skill and the fact that they recorded mantia recorded you know we have recordings of him yeah. i just again i think that and, and the shadow that mantia has his cast over the 20th century Again, I think that they are that they were responsible for a huge leap in the ability and the skill level of euphonium players, mm -hmm. a huge leap. Because you have to remember, not, up until the 1960s and 70s, euphonium players were not formally trained. You know, again, it was like the the the, the child apprentices. You, you was an apprenticeship. You, you, if you had some talent and you could find someone that could play, or you could hear them in concert, you could you, could, you know you could train yourself. But it was mainly self self teaching. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to have people like Mantia in the early 20th century playing insanely hard stuff that he writes <laughs> for the instrument that sounds like fiddle music, but played or flute music that pl but played on a euphonium. Yeah. I mean, that, that rose the whole level of euphonium playing. I mean, I, I used to, I, I've looked at the, the, um, the music that a Marine band euphonium players are playing all the way up in the 1890s and early 20th century. And they are all very much, um, opera repertoire. So it's all these transcribed either opera or oratorio arias. Mm -hmm. mainly. Um, the first theme and variation solo that I found was from 1899. Uh, G Joseph Giovannino, uh, Giov Giovannini uh, played it. It was a boozy, or boozy arrangement. And again, it was theme and variations, but it was on a Verdi tune. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting in terms of euphonium repertoire, uh, in terms of evolution, is, is from in the, in the 19th century, most of it, in terms of the Marine Band, was all classical music. It was all opera-based classical music. And uh, music from you know, the, the pop side of things um, what didn't really come in until the 20th century. Mm. Uh, the guy that really brought that in was Ole May. So Ole May was the Marine Band's first real virtuoso euphonium player. At his height, he was considered second only to Simon Mantia. He, his nickname was the Man with the Golden Tone. Hmm. And he came in in 1903, but he'd already been playing with Brooks Chicago Marine Band um, for, a long, for many years and other bands in, in Cleveland. But he came in 1903, and he came, he, the, the band structure at the time, you started out as a, as a third-class musician, and you went to second class, and if you the highest, most senior guys in the band were first class. If you were really good, and if, if you were just an amazing player, you could sometimes come in as first class. Of course, we're talking about pay here. Yeah, yeah. So, so Sandelman, who was the director of the band at the time, William Sandelman, must have promised Ole May really good pay because he came in as first class. And he was the one that brought in the the vernacular type of pieces. So you, you get polkas all of a sudden, you get theme and variations written, you know, by um, people like Gardell Simons and things like that, that are all of a sudden be played. And he doesn't play as much mm -hmm. classical repertoire as the earlier guys did. Yeah, yeah. And that had to do again with Simone Mantia. I think Salmon probably said, we got to have someone who can match Mantia. And he found Ole May and he said, well, this guy's close enough. <laughs> and, and, and he's willing to go with the pay that the Marine Corps will allow him to go or to, to, to be paid. And so he hired him. What's fascinating about Ole May is he only stayed in for seven years and he got out. Yeah, because and his I, wife like shot an officer, right? Yeah, well, no, yeah, it was really crazy. I wrote, a, I just wrote an article in the, in the ITA journal about this. His wife was was crazy. She started having an affair with another guy in the Marine band, 
And the, the, of course, it, it, according to the rules of the Marine Corps and all in the Naval Service, you can't do that. You know, adultery is part of the UCMJ. You can't do, you can't have that. And so um, Ole May found out about it and he, he went to William Salmon, who was the director of the band. He said, I want you to go to this guy. His name was um, Conan. I uh, can't remember his first name, last name Conan. And um, he basically said, I want you to go to Conan. I want you to break it off. Tell him to break it off. And so he did that. So Conan wrote, wrote this letter to Ole May's wife. Ole May's wife went crazy and actually waited for him as, as Lucius is his first name. Lucius Conan was heading back from a concert at the Capitol building in uniform back to the Marine barracks. And it happened right on 7th Street next to the barracks there in Southeast. You can go around the corner there. The, the, the newspapers are very specific where it happened. She waited for him and she shot him in the back with a snub-nosed revolver. This is like a movie, you know? <laughs> she shot him in the back and the, the, the bullet lodged right next to his... Wait, and, uh, so my, my computer just froze, so I don't know if uh, if I caught that. The bullet lodged right in his... The bullet lodged right in his spine. Spine. Yeah, his spine. <laughs> <laughs> Nowhere below that, Chris. I know you... No, it, it was, on my end, it was quite the cliffhanger. I'll see if I can leave that in the <laughs> yeah. podcast. But it lodged right in his... Yeah, and continue next week. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Sorry. so it lodged in his spine, and they, they took him to the Naval, the naval Hospital. Like, like I said, it's still standing there. <laughs> and what's hilarious is that the, the May's house was right across the street from the hospital. <laughs> so Jenny May was arrested, but, but Ole May bailed her out. But she had to go home and look right across the street and see the room where the guy she shot was, it was right there. <laughs> I mean, and they give the address of their house, and you can go see the row home is still there. I've seen it. And it's literally, the, the, of course, the street is like half the size of a normal street. So, I mean, she's almost, you know, at the front step of the hospital, which it must have been so bizarre. Well, the case, the court case was huge news because D.C. Is, a, is federal government. It's not state government. So this was a federal murder investigation. <laughs> so it was front, front page news on all the papers. And, of course, they had a picture of, of Ole May's wife, Jenny, in the middle. And then one picture of, of Ole May in his band uniform with his double bell euphonium on one side and Lucius Conan on the other side. Who was, she, he, he played French horn. And he played fiddle. So it's a love triangle <laughs> on the front page of, I mean, just imagine that in the Washington Post today. But it shows you how influential and how popular the Marine Band was at the time that that would make front page news. Yeah. Of course, it was a salacious trial. And a lot of, you know, the details of the affair came up, which was very embarrassing. And uh, what happened was is that Lucius Conan lasted for like a year and two weeks. And in order to get a murder conviction, he had to die within a year. And so she beat the murder conviction, but she ended up getting, I think, an aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, something like that. But she got 10 years in, in federal, federal prison, not state prison, federal prison. Yeah. Um, wow. And so, so basically, um, I imagine, and that, that happened in 1906. And what's crazy to me is that all this time when this is happening, according to all the programs that I found from the Marine Band Library, Ole May is still, he's still soloing like 19, 20 times in a summer. <laughs> wow. I mean, he's got a full, very busy soloing schedule. And he, he's top billing too. William uh, Salomon gave him top billing on all of the press releases for the Marine Band. It's always Ole May, Euphonium playing, you know, different polkas and things like that. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. So, and he played at the New York Hippodrome, like the same year that his wife got arrested, you know, got, got sentenced. I mean, it, it just mind boggling the stress. I mean, he, he had, I think he had four or five kids at home too. Wow. So I can't imagine how he was able to produce at that level considering the, and plus, you know, your coworker just got shot by your wife. I mean, yeah. what are the other people in, that you're working with are thinking, you know? Yeah. Anyway, so he finally left in, 2000, in, in, in 1907, not 2007. 1907. Um, I imagine it was just because he's like, look, I got to, <laughs> I have to, I have to get out of here. And he moved to Pittsburgh. Um, and he, I think he stopped playing for a while there. And then he eventually started playing um, in a band in Cleveland. He moved back, back to Cleveland. And what's interesting is, is, is Arthur Pryor loved his playing and he always wanted to get him to play with Arth with his band in, in um, Asbury Park, New Jersey. Hmm. And one summer is the summer of 1907 or 1917 rather. He finally got him to sub in uh, with some concerts that summer at Asbury Park because Simon Manti had just left to play with the Metropolitan Opera. He had left band playing mm -hmm. uh, to be a trombonist with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. And um, so Ole May went and he, after like, I think the third or fourth concert, he went on a drive like at midnight in one of the cornet players uh, convertible um, Cadillacs that he had. And of course, back then there were no seatbelts. Mm -hmm. And so they were driving and there was different reports on what happened, but the, the driver was this cornet player. He said that the wind blew his, his spectacles off of his face, his glasses. Mm -hmm. He lost control of the vehicle and they actually jackknifed a, um, a street lamp and it basically tore the, 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 the car in half. And Ole May was thrown from the vehicle and, you know, he died of his injuries, you know, pretty soon after, but, uh, uh, Arthur Pryor felt so guilty about it that he paid for all of the funeral arrangements and had the body shipped back to Cleveland where it's buried today. Yeah, well, but um, yeah, Ole May, I mean, what a great talent. And um, really after him, we didn't really, really get a great euphonium soloist. We had some good ones like, uh, like um, Donald Kimball in the world, in the world war two years was great, but a really fine prolific soloist. We didn't get until Arthur Lehman came in in the 1950s. Yeah. That was a tangent. I don't know if you wanted me to go there. Yeah, no, uh, we got to okay. You got to have the, the love triangle story if we're yeah, talking I think about we, the double bell euphonium. So. Yeah, I think we yeah. got off on the Italian, the Italian, you know, effect on the double bell. But I, I think the Italians, their influence can't be um, understated. Of course, Stephen Kinstracy's right there, a great Italian euphonium player. And I've got <laughs> Italian roots. So and Chris Troiano, I think we've got three Italians here that uh, are, are keeping the keeping the Italian blood alive in the uh, Maybe yeah, my my fiance's mother says that I'm a New York Italian, so it's not not true Italian. <laughs> it's a fucking I'm Italian. kind of Pennsylvania Italian. So well, my, Italian, my Italian relatives went straight from Italy to Colorado, of all places. So you know, I guess I'm a Colorado Italian. Is that yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but we have the pizza, so you're... that's right. Yeah, <laughs> no pizza in Colorado. That's for that. <laughs> Something that I still had um, a question about. I was reading a book uh, by Kenneth Bernard called Lincoln and the music of the civil war. Yes. And, it, and it's basically, you know, chronicling the Marine band during yes. those four or five year period. Yes. Uh, so it's been really interesting, but something that I noticed in that book is that the Marine band needed to be ready at like the drop of a hat. Like, like they could all be at home and then like, yeah, get a phone call and they had well, to, no be to Oh yeah. <laughs> uh be there like in an hour like is yeah. that is there still that immediacy in the band now absolutely yeah yeah i mean 
usually we try, I mean, the, the White House plans, you know, events so, you know, far enough in advance, but, you know, it, but, it, but sometimes something will happen and, you know, they need the band. And so, um, you know, what's they, the, they, what's they, the shortest notice that you've gotten? Uh, hours, yeah. you know, a couple hours. Um, and the thing is we have repertoire ready to go, you know, so mm -hmm. whatever they need, we can, we can fill in that gap. If they need a jazz combo, usually it's like, it's like for a jazz combo. Sometimes it's for like a string ensemble to go over there, but we have a repertoire already to go. So mm -hmm. it's just plug and play, you know, we, we can, we can do that. So how does that work? I know that you guys like have to go in for rehearsals and then when you have uh, Arlington cemetery things, you know, you're on a schedule for that kind of thing, but then yes. for yeah, these those are planned out months ahead, but then for these things where it's, uh, where it can happen on much shorter notice, do you have guys that are on call during a certain time of the day, or are all four of you guys on call all the time, or how does that? Well, work? we're we're on call every day, um, except for weekends. What we call make jobs. It's that's the it's kind of the informal title of it. But basically, from six a.m. to ten a.m., we have to be available to take a call and to to get assigned a job. Hmm. Now, I, in my 18 years in the band, I have, I have gotten called maybe twice saying, Hey, a new thing just came in. You need to be ready today or tomorrow. Mm. Um, but I'm a euphonium player and I'm not, you know, first call for white house jobs. Usually. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, basically the, the stuff that I do at the white house is usually on the outside. So whether it's, you know, a balcony band, you know, or a you know, band on the South lawn, uh, which we've been doing since, uh, you know, the 1820s. Mm -hmm. Um, that's usually what the euphoniums are involved in, though I say that, and Ryan McGeorge, one of the other euphonium players in the band, has played euphonium with the jazz combo in the White House before, too. So that's that's been a really great development for the euphonium as well. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so we are on call. And, and like I said, it's usually going to be the piano players. It's going to be the, the, the string players. It's going to be the jazz guys to do the jazz combo stuff mm. because that's kind of the, that's a lot of the music they want. They want just background music, you know, okay, yeah. for, not for, for those opera transcriptions anymore. <laughs> well, you, I mean, if they wanted that, we could do that for them. But um, I mean, it, it's, it's mainly, um, you know, if they have a, if they have a cocktail party or if they have a, 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 a impromptu, you know, bill signing or something like that, then, then they want to have that kind of background stuff there to, to kind of just, liven up the event and to, to make it smooth and to make it, you know, you know, look and feel good to those who come and for the press too, you know, mm -hmm. um, the band has been used at times to distract the press. Um, uh, I don't know if I should get into that story, but, uh, but, uh, but it, here we go. <laughs> well, I, 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 I should probably demure because this is going out, but yeah, yeah that's uh, there's a lot of stories you can actually look up on the internet and actually on the Marine band, uh, website. That, that do tell a lot of really great stories about the, the president and the Marine band in terms of how we've been used over the years. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to talk a little bit about um, the band during the civil war years or during the Lincoln administration, it's a really interesting time because like I, I mentioned way back at the beginning of the interview, the band up until the 1860s was getting paid out of the pockets of, of officers. We had no, you know, rank, I mean, the rank, there was a rank structure besides drum major and fife major. That was it, you know, mm -hmm. and even though we weren't playing fifes anymore, but it was the, it was Scala who basically um, petitioned Lincoln, uh, President Lincoln to help them and to, you know, standardize the pay, standardize the rank, all that kind of stuff that, that made the, um, made Lincoln go to Congress and Congress passed a resolution or an act in, in the 1860s. I can't remember the exact date. 
Mm-hmm. I do believe it was during the Civil War. Um, well, it had to have been because Lincoln was president. Mm-hmm. Um, that basically gave the Marine Band the same pay structure as the West Point Army Band, which I think is fascinating. Because mm-hmm. the West Point Band came into being in 1802, maybe 1805, something like that. Mm-hmm. And so we became, the, we had the same pay structure. We actually had pay for the first time since our beginning. And we had rank. So that's when I think that's when, you know, musician third, second, first class became a thing. Mm-hmm. And um, that rank, the, the musician third, second and first class, that stayed until the 20th century. I mean, I think it, up until like the 1930s, even they would, they still had musician third, first and second and first class until I think they, the Marine Corps finally restructured it in the 1950s. I want to say mm-hmm. it was that late. Wow. Maybe it was maybe it was 1940s, like maybe or 30s, or just before World War II. It was around that mid mid 20th century time. But mm-hmm. so anyway, that that happened with because of Scala and because of Lincoln, and also you know Scala just he really in his personal writings he really liked Lincoln. He said Lincoln was very plain spoken, he was very friendly, and and Lincoln loved the band. The person that really enjoyed the band though was their young younger son Willie, mm-hmm. and a really kind of unfortunate thing that happened. You know the band. The band is always trying to, you know, keep itself relevant and always trying to give the, the chief executive what they want and what they they need for 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 events of state. And the the band Lincoln loved the band. Willie loved the band. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln, the first lady, loved the band. And so they they actually, I think, in 1861 or two, they um, had for the first time a a concert of the Marine Band. I think it was inside the the, the White House. Um, and it was a dedicated concert to the Marine Band. They had refreshments, they invited guests, you know, heads of state to this thing. And it was really kind of the Marine Band's time to shine, you know, and, and what happened though was, is that Willie got sick about two weeks before he came down, he came down ill. And so the night of the concert, it ended up being a very low key thing and, and something that really kind of fizzled because Mary Todd Lincoln wasn't even there. She was, she kept going back upstairs to check on her son who was sick and really tragically, Willie died. He was, he was 11 years old and he died. I can't remember what he died of. I'm sure you could look that up, but Mary Todd Lincoln was so distraught that she canceled all Marine band concerts around the white house. At that point we were playing concerts at the uh, Lafayette park across the street from the white house and on the South lawn of the white house weekly weekly concert mm-hmm. and she canceled all of them for, for indefinitely so i don't know what the band did because we used to get paid extra for playing at the white house uh and so i, I imagine it was a really lean time and finally after a year i think it was um you know the people of dc were getting pretty dang angry that they you know they couldn't have any any marine band concerts so finally i think one of one of lincoln's advisors said you, you've got to start the concerts again you've got to so okay, Lincoln, okay. Lincoln approved them to start the Marine Band to start concerts, but just in Lafayette Park, not on the grounds of the White House. And I don't think they started again with the concerts on the grounds until after Lincoln's left office, until you know after the assassination. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about that is is that when Lincoln was assassinated at Ford's Theater, the guys in the pit and the guy leading the pit was William Withers, who used to be in the Marine Band, and mm-hmm. the guy on double bass was Lewis Weber who was the first euphonium player that I was or saxophone player that I found. Wow. He was on double bass the night that it happened. Yeah. Yeah. So they both witnessed it. And what happened was, is he said that, that there was an intermission and um, 
when it, when and then he, I think I think it was Withers was backstage, and he was going back on to to do something, and and John Wilkes Booth brushed by him and knocked him over, huh. and stabbed him with a knife that he had, but it huh. didn't penetrate his clothing or it wasn't a it wasn't a mortal wound, but um, but he went right past him, and because he said that's John Wilkes Booth, you know, it'd be like, yeah, hey, yeah. that's Tom Cruise, you know, yeah, yeah, it was it was it was, and he went out the door, and I think Booth swore at him or something like that, but. William Withers, former Marine Band guy, had to testify at the trial. Wow. And, and what's other, what else is interesting is after the assassination, they, the, the federal government locked Ford's theater down. Mm-hmm. And um, Lewis Weber mentioned that he had a double bass in there, and he couldn't get his instrument out. They couldn't, they couldn't get their instruments out. In yes. fact, Ford's theater was dark. That was it. That was the last performance that Ford's theater ever did. Mm-hmm. And it eventually became like an office building and like a federal federal office building for a while until I think it was the 18, 1950s or 60s when they started getting funds to re you know yeah. refurbish it as a theater. Yeah, right. I've, I've seen videos of some uh, Civil War bands giving performances on that stage, so I know that it's still that it was at least uh, renovated or refurbished to. Uh, yeah, well, it's, now it is. You can I've, I've yeah. gone and seen. I've seen they have a Christmas Carol that does that goes every year there. It's a yep. beautiful theater. And the box is still there where Lincoln sat. I mean, it's right there. You can they, put, they have like a banner on it or something? Yeah, they've got flags and a picture and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But um, I said that's fascinating that members of the Marine Band were there yeah, when yeah. he was assassinated. Yeah, that's crazy. And so, um, but uh, Lincoln had a very... fitting, I guess. Yeah, Lincoln had a very close association with the band. Um, the, great, the, the most famous story, though, is that Lincoln... Um, asked the band to accompany him to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, when That's he right. uh, dedicated the National Cemetery, which is where we get the Gettysburg Address. Right. Um, in the actual notes of the program, of course, there's the famous guy that spoke for three hours that no one remembers his name. <laughs> and then Lincoln gets up and speaks. Well, between them, it said all the commentary from the day said a band played a short air before the president got up. Now, there's no mention of what band it was. I, I, I can assume, though, that if it was the president of the United States, we might have been playing Hail to the Chief yeah. before he got up, or maybe it was the Marine Band playing something. We do know that the Marine Band led the procession into the cemetery of everybody before the ceremony started playing the old 100th, you know, the Protestant yeah, yeah. 100th mm-hmm. hymn, which I think is amazing. And uh, colloquially, the story goes that on the way back uh, on the train ride, Lincoln got tired of dealing with all of his advisors about the war, and he made his way back to the car, the train car where the, the band was, and he just hung out with the band he converse wow. with the band which i think is really great the band's always a good hang so good choice. yeah the band's always a good hang and and i think that <laughs> i think lincoln you know lincoln i think was a man of the people i really do i think he was very plain spoken and i think mm-hmm. i don't know i think the band i think that's probably why he liked the band because they were the marine band was a, just a blue it still is to a large extent just a blue collar musical organization you know where it was a family business for like i said before for a lot of these guys and you know they just I think they were just down, down to earth people. You know? you guys yeah, the band works hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, Chris? I say, except you guys have red collars. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, they're black. <laughs> oh. They're black collars. Can you, can you explain uh, the uniform real quick in case people don't know why the Marine Band has a tradition red. of wearing red? Yeah, I guess yeah the, sure. Real, the, so the, really the, quickly. The old, not, guard, the old guard wears a red too. Yes. Yeah, and they, they should too. It's not because we're British or of British derivation, but um, back in the, in the Civil War day or the Revolutionary War days, the musicians or field musics, as they were called, were the, were the opposite colorations of the infantry troops. 
And uh, so in the Marine Corps, the opposite, the, the, they used to wear dark blue with red piping. So the opposite, that would be a red or, or scarlet uh, tunic with black or dark blue, you know, um, piping on the outside or, or you know, ornamentation. Hmm. And that's the basic thing. That's the basic re reason why we wear red, the old guard wears red, is because the field musics at the time wore the opposite colorations. It was also to denote non-combatants, which is by the rules of war at the time, I don't think you could fire on a non-combatant, same as you couldn't fire on like an, on a field medic. Mm. You know, um, I don't know if that always panned out. <laughs> You're wearing a giant red coat on a battle battlefield, but you know, I mean, that that was that was the rule at the time. I think. Well, I know drum was is, Go ahead. I know drummer boys were targeted during the Civil War at some yeah. point. So yeah, they were targeted. The reason they were targeted is because uh, on the battlefield there was no no uh, satellite uplink or or cell phones or <laughs> radio communication. So it was drum drum cadences and bugle calls were the only way of communication. So that's how that's how officers would would get the troops to do flanking maneuvers you know, in the field yeah. while the guns were shooting. You could hear a drum call do you know retreat. Or advance or flank, you know, they had a, they have a million drum or, or bugle calls mm -hmm. that you had to memorize as a soldier in order to being able to function on the battlefield well, mm -hmm. and and buglers had to memorize that too. In fact, like as I mentioned before, the during the apprentice music program, you had to memorize a certain amount of bugle calls, mm -hmm. and the director of the Marine Band would test you on those calls, and if you passed that, then you would pass your 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 apprenticeship and if you couldn't do that then you, you would just you would not pass your apprenticeship so hmm. but there's a bugle boy scout badge too you can yeah see there you go some bugle calls. <laughs> well there used to be there actually used to be in the marine <laughs> or a, a, a separate rank for bugler that had a trumpet on under the chevron uh, on mm -hmm. the rank a pat drink patch so you don't have that anymore <laughs> so yeah in terms of scala and the lincolns though that was a really pivotal time for the band and what's interesting too is after the, the the Civil War, you know, there was a huge drawdown, especially with the bands. You know, mm -hmm. there were just bands were just getting canceled, you know, yeah. left and right, mm -hmm. and decommissioned. And so, what's it, what one thing that led that came out of that was that the Marine Band one day, um, after the Civil War, went to um, it was New Year's Day. They just decided, Scala decided to go to the back porch of the commandant's home, which if any of you have seen the Marine barracks in Washington, DC and Southeast, it's a square city block. And on one, one side on, on, on a street is, is the commandant's home. And that's the oldest continuously lived in residence in DC. It dates to like 19, 1803. Hmm. And so in the 1860s, the commandant, the commandant has always lived there. He still lives there to this day. The current commandant still lives there. So um, they went to the commandant's home on New Year's morning and they serenaded him. Surprise. It was a surprise serenade. So he comes out, he, they serenade him, which actually was quite common back then. They would do that. We usually would hire a band to do that, mm -hmm. but they serenaded him. It was a surprise. He invited all the musicians in. They had a, to they, they toasted with buttered rum and uh, it became a tradition. You know, we still do it to this day, every new year's day. We did it this last new year's day. We, we, we come to quote, it's a surprise. It's been happening for over 150 years. <laughs> But the, the commandant still invites us in. They still toast. The, the director of the Marine Band and the commandant and all of his guests are there. They toast with a buttered rum. They drink it. It's um, brace. What is it? Uh, brace the mainsail. Or they say a name. It's like brace the mainsail or something like that. I'm, I'm blanking on what they say. And but it's it's a it's a saying basically to 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 drink up. And so they drink and then they invite everybody in. And there's always a nice spread of food there. Um, but what's fascinating to me is is I think the way the reason that got started is because of all the drawdown. I think the, 
Scala at the time was like, hey, let's go pay our good buddy, uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, a visit and just remind him how relevant and good we sound, you know, and let's just, just, you know, let's just do something nice for him. So if one of the bean counters in the, in the war department comes, comes calling and saying, why do you have your own band? He can say, Oh, they're great. Just leave. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like that was a trend. We talked about Chris, was it the 26th North Carolina band mm-hmm. or um, that when the order came down during the civil war to um, kind of reform the regimental brass bands and the brigade brass bands, they were so deep. It was a union band. Um, that, that, but they was were, the, that was the Port Royal band. Yeah, they were so deep in Confederate territory and they had made themselves a fixture of the town that uh, because they had made themselves important, they were able to then stick around and just kind of be renamed. So it's, uh, you know, make yourself important and uh, yeah. they'll, they'll let you stay. <laughs> yeah, so I, mean, I think it was a pretty shrewd move with, with um, you know, from, from Scala right after the Civil War to do that. And like I said, we, we still do it. And it, it's still, I think it's still important because, you know, the common of the Marine Corps, he doesn't get to hear us, even though he lives at the barracks, hmm. he doesn't work at the barracks because the barracks is not the center of the Marine Corps anymore. You know, com, the, the Quantico is the, is the headquarters of the Marine Corps in Virginia. So he doesn't really get to hear the band all that much. And, and it's a chance for us to, to show him, you know, that we're there, that we support him and that, you know, we, we, we're sounding great. And that we're still doing our major function and we're still providing the music that we have for over 200 years. And it's, like I said, it's, it, it's funny because it still serves the same function it did 150 years ago. Yeah. Um, so it's, 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 it's neat. And then I also know Scala was responsible for upsizing the band. And I think he, in, in that uh, Bernard book, I think it said he like tripled the number of musicians. Yeah. Well, that was band. probably Lincoln too, that, that, that he, you know, he, 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 he talked to Congress and the Lincoln that did that. Yeah, the band size has fluctuated throughout the years. Um, even though they were saved after the Civil War in the 1870s, they almost got disbanded. It came close. Hmm. But they were really, re- instead of that, the compromise was they really got reduced in number. And I think by the time Sousa came in in 1880, they only had, I think, maybe, you know, in the, in the 20s, maybe 30, hmm. maybe 32, 34, wow. something like that. It was small. And during Sousa's time, they were able to get some more musicians. But the real big coup happened at, in 1900 or 1901 during the McKinley administration. William Sandelman just, I mean, he, he really wheeled and dealed. And he, basically, he almost doubled the size of the band. Hmm. And that, what's interesting there is that because he was German, the two things that happened was, um, and this really ties into the brass band thing, because, of, because most of the of the, the band directors in the Marine band were Italian during the 19th century. The, the slide trombone wasn't used quite as much. Uh, they, I think they did have slide trombones, but the, the, the person that would always play the, the first chair trombone player, the first part trombone was always a valve trombonist, always. Mm-hmm. I think that was even through, through the, the Susie years, though I might be mistaken on that. But I do know that that I read one article, newspaper article about a, a, uh, one of the Marine Band euphor- or trombone soloists at the turn of the century that did say that he was the first uh, principal trombonist of the Marine Band to do so on slide trombone rather than valve trombone. Hmm. Interesting. And I think, I think one thing that's interesting in the evolution of the euphonium in the Marine Band is I think a lot of the guys that ended up on baritone, playing baritone, because it was definitely a doubler's instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, were guys that were on the on the valve trombone first. Hmm. And I think that's another reason why I think Italians found it very easy to play the euphonium, uh, the double bell euphonium, because that's not an Italian instrument, I don't think. It wasn't in, in, the, in the 1890s by that point, is because they were playing a valve trombone in Italian bands. Because slide trombone in Italy wasn't a thing. 
-hmm. That was a German instrument. It was not an Italian instrument. Valve, valve trombone was much more Italian. Mm -hmm. And so I think the Marine band didn't really use a slide trombone until, you know, the 1890s, you know, mm -hmm. full time. Um, but, uh, Anyway, I got off topic. What were we <laughs> what were we talking about? What was the original question again? I'm blanking on the. I went on a tangent now. I forgot where we were going. It's okay. It's a, it's an episode of tangents. It's great though. It's good. Yeah, it's good but but um, size size of Scala's band and yeah, size of Scala's band. Yeah. yeah. So I think it, it did it did it did get larger and larger. What I was going to say was that when when William Salomon got the larger band, uh, he actually expanded the euphonium section. So there was one euphonium, there was two baritones and two tenor horns. But they're not the brass band tenor horns. They were like basically the tenor sax horn, but they were upright, you know, because mm -hmm. he wanted that full German, you know, yeah. brass section. For sure. And so he brought in guys like, um, there's a guy named Giuseppe Molino he brought in. Giuseppe Molino was a valve trombone player, Italian, that he brought over on tenor horn into the band. And um, it's John E. Esputa, who was the son of another John Esputa who'd been in the band, um, who was actually John Philip Sousa's music teacher. And uh, he also had his own brass band, John Disputed did. Mm -hmm. So those two guys came in the band. They, they got out pretty quickly because the whole tenor horn thing, you know, it just went away. I think they just didn't need that many euphoniums in the band. Yeah. But um, it was really interesting. So the size of the band has, has, yeah, has steadily increased. We have over 170 musicians now, or wow. around, roughly 160, then support staff, it's about 170. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Wow. And that's that's accounting for the strings and, yes. and jazz complement and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, most of the jazz guys are either are in the string orchestra or they're members of the band, you know. But they 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 do they double in jazz too. That's not its own uh, billet. No, that's a doublers ensemble. Yeah, we're we're the, we're still even though with 107, we're still the smallest band and organization of all the services. So after World War One, you get the, the the Navy band comes, the Army band comes, and then after World War Two, the Air Force band comes. Um, and I think the, the, the Coast Guard band came after that. No, the Coast Guard band came in the 30s, I think, because I think John Philip Sousa had a part in that somehow. Anyway, um, so then you have the, but then in the 70s, all these bands really expanded. And that's when they started with choruses and they started with jazz bands like the, like the Army Blues and the Airmen of Note and mm -hmm. the Commodores and all these guys. You know, these, these, the Navy and the Army just expanded and the Air Force expanded and they had all these, you know, all these different, separate ensembles within the quote unquote band umbrella organization and the Marine band had always, we've always done what we've always, we've always done what, what, what we've done in the past, which is um, we used to just have doublers. So all the guys in the band would double on string instruments. So when the white house needed an orchestra, they were essentially getting the same players, but they were on string instruments. Mm. Um, but in the fifties, we realized that the level that you could get with doublers just wasn't high enough. So we, we started, you know, we stopped that policy. And we started hiring, you know, dedicated string string mm -hmm. players, no more doubling. Mm -hmm. So, but even then, you know, the only differentiation, the band is string orchestra and band. That's it. You know, all the other players that play with the orchestra or the jazz or any other ensemble we do, which is a lot. Um, they're all just members of the band that, 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 that double, that can do other things. You know, mm -hmm. we, we, we do, We've we sent mariachi bands over there. We've sent Latin jazz bands over there. We've sent a a, a Muslim or Islamic folk ensemble to the White House. Yeah. Irish band. Um, you know, it just doesn't matter. Whatever they want, we we find the people that can do it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just how we've we, we've we've rolled. Um, and plus, plus the Marine Corps is is the smallest of all the branches. You know, hmm. and so we, we kind of are commensurate with that size, I guess. <laughs> do you the sure. proud right? 
Yeah, there you go. So, so I mean, you know, that's just kind of how our tradition is, has, has continued to go. And the euphonium section has also, you know, has also gone up and down in terms of numbers. Uh, in, as late as the 1980s, there was only three. Mm. Um, mm. And that made it really difficult when the band would go on tour because there would be only one euphonium left. We'd have to do all the jobs, that, mm -hmm. you know, because we, we leave on tour and half the band stays. Mm -hmm. um, so they finally got, when Luke Spiros retired in the, 18, in the 1980s, we, we finally got four guys back. So um, that makes it a lot easier. So two can go on tour, two can stay. And, you mm -hmm. know, it makes, it makes the, the, the divvying up of jobs a lot more um, even and a lot more manageable in terms of numbers. And that bill has never gone away since. You go on tour twice a year? Just once, yeah. Once. October, yeah. But there was a spring tour also, no? No, that's, that's I think the, the Air Force Band does that. Um, of course, the Army Field Band does three of those or four of those. But, mm. yeah, um, yeah, we just do one. We've always just done one. Um, it used to be in the spring and then it moved to the fall and it used to be nine weeks uh, every day, no breaks, twice a day, two, two yeah. performances a day. Right. And that was mainly because it used to be a moneymaker for the, for the band back in the old days, you know, mm -hmm. so they had to make money. Yeah, so yeah. they did as many concerts as they could. But then when the federal government came in and said, no, you can't be doing that. You're, <laughs> you're a military unit. Um, we'll, we'll basically cover it. And then sponsors can, if sponsors can cover your expenses, we'll pay you your, your normal rate. Um, then that, that changed the game. So we didn't have to do so many concerts. So when I got in, it was, it was seven weeks. And then in 2006, maybe, no, 2007, I think it was that that's when it got changed to four weeks, which, oh, everyone was <laughs> so happy. We were just like, oh, it's great. Because seven weeks on the road is, whew, it's so yeah. hot. Especially when you got a family and kids, it's it's rough. Yeah, I'm sure. It reminds me of something also I read in that Bernard book that uh, in 1861, <clears throat> Napoleon's nephew, Prince Napoleon, came to the uh, the capital, and uh, the Marine Band played a concert. They did their typical uh, afternoon concert at the White House, and then left from that full concert, went right inside, and then started playing for... Uh, the party, you know, the gala being thrown for Napoleon, and they played until like two or three o'clock in the morning. So, yeah. like, nonstop playing that sounds from, like... from the afternoon to three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's just what they did. I mean, granted, the music they were playing was probably not as taxing as, you know, the, play, the music we play now, but mm. it's still, it's still playing, and, you know, yeah, yeah. jobs wear out. I don't know how they did that. I mean, they may have had smaller ensembles, you know, break out or something. I don't know what they yeah. did, but um, yeah, I mean, it. it the, the fact that the Marine Band has been the president's own since basically since John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, you know, mm -hmm. has, has meant that we can do in terms of repertoire, we can do a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also because of the tradition that we, I just talked about with, with, with the Italian and German bandmasters. you know, when Sandelman came in and, you know, he was a baritone player who became the director after, um, Fanciulli, Francisco Fanciulli, who's the guy that replaced Sousa, got fired. And the reason he got fired is because he refused to play a Sousa march, by the way. <laughs> yeah, they fired him. And uh, so Sandelman came in and he was German. He came in German. And he's actually a really interesting story, too. He came, he, would, he was in Germany, he was trained in Germany as a violinist, and, and he also had played baritone. But he came over at, at, with a traveling orchestra that used to play outside of Philadelphia. Apparently there used to be an island in the middle of the Delaware River that had a big park on it and you could take ferries from Philadelphia and people would have picnics there and, and band and orchestra concerts on this island. Hmm. I can't remember what the island's name was, but they eventually just, they did away with it. So there's no more island there, but 
um, they used to play on this island and uh, Sandelman would, would he, he would come over with his orchestra playing violin and he met a, a girl there in Philadelphia, an American girl and wanted to marry her. And he didn't know what to do. And so he actually met a guy who used to come to the concerts who was John Diston's son and one of the famous Diston quartets. Hmm. So after he sold the business, I can't remember his name, um, the son, I'm blanking on his name, so many names and dates to remember, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> after the Diston family um, sold the Diston instrument company to Boozy in the 1860s, Diston came to America hmm. to open up his own factory. And he hmm. started in Philadelphia. And um, he eventually went to Williamsport, Pennsylvania, uh, out west, but um, in the west part of the state. But anyway, so Salomon met Diston. <laughs> and Diston told him, look, if you want to stay in the States and marry this girl, you got to go to John Philip Sousa down in Marine Band. They're hiring. You play baritone and fiddle, which is great. And you should go and you should go audition for him. Yeah, wow. so he took a train down to Washington, D.C. This is in the 18, 1886 time period. And he said he, he got to Marine Barracks there and Susan was out hunting, believe it or not. You yeah, could right? still hunt around D.C. <laughs> and he came back and he had he literally he'd had the pheasants and, and, and rabbits that he'd shot and he put them down. You know, he had he really gotten lucky that day. <laughs> and then he listened to an audition. So. <laughs> <laughs> And he nice. listened. And he, the guy, he said he played. He, I think he played clarinet, uh, baritone, and violin. You know, he played three different instruments. There you go. And what's fascinating about Salomon, he actually the first violin he ever played, he made himself. He built himself a violin in Germany. <laughs> yes, he built himself a violin. I'm gonna build a euphonium and yeah. use it, use it on my audition for the Marine Band. Next yeah, time. I'm sure it'll go really well. <laughs> I don't think that was the violin he used for his audition. Thank heaven. Okay. But well, uh, I'm, I'm he, still he gonna do that. Like he was using pine tree sap for resin for rosin or something like that. But <laughs> anyway, um, so he played, and of course, uh, um, Sandelman or Souza really liked him. But he said, "Look, I don't have an opening right now for a first class musician. I only have a third class spot." So if you're willing to take it, I can do that. And then as, as soon as that position opens up, I'll give you the first class position because that's higher pay. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened. So he, I think he was making something like $13 a month or something ridiculous like that. Mm -hmm. And he, but he got on, he, he, he married the girl. They moved down to Washington and he became a member of the band on clarinet mainly, but he also doubled on baritone when they needed it. Mm -hmm. And of course, obviously violin. But when, and he was very loyal to Sousa, but when Sousa retired in 19, 1892, um, he did not like Fanchuli and he left the band pretty quickly after Fanchuli came in as director. Hmm. And then when Fanchuli got fired, they appointed William Sandelman, who at that point had already started being a director of orchestras in the, in the local theater scene in DC. Hmm. They appointed him to be the, the next director of the band, the 19th director of the band. And he was director of the band until 1929, I think, or no, 1932 even, I think it was. 1932, maybe? I think it was pretty close. It was, he's the longest tenured band director we've had um, in the Marine Band. And um, like I said, he, he did a lot for the band, but a really interesting story with that guy and interesting on how um, you know, he, he met the distance and, and kind of how he worked into the overall um, history of the, of the euphonium in general. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing and then i know the i guess the very last thing is that whenever you guys do your march madness bracket with the marine yes. band yes i don't know if it's every year but a, a good number of the years i see scala's uh union slash yeah. inauguration union march. march yes yes yeah 
that was that's another thing about the Lincoln uh, the Lincoln years. We found a photo. This is some years back. We found a photo of Lincoln's second inaugural. It's on mm -hmm. the it's on the east side, east or west side of the Capitol. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the west side of the Capitol. It's the one that's not facing the mall, mm -hmm. the opposite one. That's when all that's where all the inaugurations used to happen. Mm -hmm. um, but it shows Lincoln. You can see Lincoln at the podium, I think, and you can see the huge you know platform they'd built and everything like that. You can still see the scaffolding on the dome that wasn't quite finished on the Capitol building. Mm -hmm. And one of our librarians at the time said, you know, I wonder if the Marine Band was there because we, we, we tout ourselves as being as having played every if most of the inaugurations of every president since Thomas Jefferson. We know that we played his first inauguration and we're mm -hmm. pretty sure we played everyone since then. Mm -hmm. um, so he started getting a magnifying glass and looking at this picture and sure enough off to the right of the presidential lectern, you can see the backward bell of a sax horn sticking out <laughs> and he's like there we are right awesome. there it's awesome Bingo. It. very cool and that was the probably one of the earliest well it's certainly the earliest inaugural photo we have of the band mm -hmm. and it's it's one of the earliest if not the earliest photos of the band because mm -hmm. we do have one of the band um standing in front of the commandant's house on the in in at, at marine barracks washington on the parade deck there at the barracks which is which is um you know dated to the civil war time but not at the inauguration of president lincoln so we were we were really lucky to see that i like how you say a photo of the band meanwhile it's just a a bell sticking out of a crowd of people <laughs> well i mean it's a well it's a bell sticking out of a crowd of people on the lectern next to the president of the united states so it's pretty good ch chance that it's the marine band yeah and and the other thing is is that um uh, in terms of the union march we we uh we played that off and on we had a brand new ar arrangement um, done when we did the Library of Congress concert, like in I think it was 2013. We did that. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna put a link up to that. On yeah, our, it was really great. On, on had, our website. Yeah, the guy he lectured about Scott. He did a really nice job. He's done a couple of our concerts. He's done. A, he's a really I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's a really, really knowledgeable guy. And he's a great storyteller, and so he makes it makes it really entertaining. But part of the Union March is, is we, we have, we have to yell in the middle of it, hurrah for the union. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and de depending on how the, the players of the band feel that day, you, <laughs> the hurrah is, is, is more or less, you know, enthusiastic, yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, it, it, it was great because if you have to, you have to remember too, at that time, the March, as we know it as a, as a type of, of music, it really had an American March hadn't really mm -hmm. coalesced yet. You and know, Susa, so it wasn't there yet. <laughs> Susa was just a he was a kid you know yeah. his, his father was there mm -hmm. but he was a kid and and just the, the type of march that we identify as american you know hadn't really been developed yet and and scala actually was really instrumental in developing that style you know of, of, a, of a of a a march separate from a classical a larger classical work a march that is not um you know uh, is, is 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 american it's not german it's not it's not a english march we're playing or a german march or a french it's an american march it's an original composition on in Amer on american soil mm -hmm. and so he, his his marches even though they're not you know they're not susan marches they're not great okay. but they, they 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 were good for the time and they served a function and they were a basis for a lot of other guys that came after him you know mm -hmm. including susa because you know, Sousa was there. He heard those marches. He under, he he studied with guys that were in the band with Scala. You know, with with John Esputa was was in the band with Scala, 
and John Esputa was, was Sousa's, you know, first music teacher. So, I mean, it, it was all things that were in Sousa's ear when Sousa started writing his marches. Mm-hmm. So, and, and Scala lived till 1903. So Sousa knew him. I'm sure, yeah, yeah, for sure he met him and he lived in DC till he died. So he, he knew Scala. I'm sure he, he, he met them, met, met the man several times and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm yeah, sure they yeah. shared stuff. So yeah, very influential. Yeah. Did you want to talk about Hail to the Chief? That was one of the other questions that you emailed me. Is, is the Hail to the Chief? Uh, yeah, if you if you want to, yeah, Hail to the Chief is in, is interesting because it it started out as as a kind of a, a incidental music, um, part of like a I, don't know, I think it was part of like an, a larger show or something like that. Um, it was it could be they said it, it might be derived from an old Gaelic air, um, but it was written by a guy named James Sanderson, and it was in this incidental music to some a, a dramatic adaptation. Oh yeah, uh, Walter Scott's Lady of the Lake poem. Mm. So someone made an adaptation, like a play of it, and they had some incidental music and hailed to the chief. I think it was a chief of of like a clan, like a Scottish clan or something that came. Mm-hmm. Um, Highland Chieftain. But anyway, the, it was a popular tune and the band played it. The first time the band played it was in 1829 for President Andrew Jackson when the, when the CNO Canal opened up in Washington, D.C., which is the canal that runs alongside the Potomac River. And um, uh, I think that's, the, isn't that the canal? Maybe it's a different one. Uh, now I'm, 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 no, doubting my, I'm doubting yeah. my knowledge here, but Anyway, it was a popular tune of the day, but really two first ladies are credited for getting it to be the, the official, you know, honors for the, for the president. The first one was, was Julia Tyler, wife of President Tyler, who was president from 1841 to 1845. Uh, she wanted the Marine Band to play it just to announce her husband because she liked the music. The, the second one's funnier. It's Sarah Polk, who was the wife of the first lady, wife of James K. Polk, who succeeded Tyler from 1845 to 1849. She wanted it because Polk apparently was very short. And when he would come into a room, no one would notice him. <laughs> and so she wanted him, she wanted some music to basically announce that he was coming. So everyone had to stop what they're doing and, and, and watch them. But eventually it became, uh, you know, the, the official um, or unofficial uh, presidential honors. Mm-hmm. It kind of lost favor when, when Sousa was, was uh, the president or was the leader of the band. I, I don't know if it was Sousa that initiated this conversation or the president, but one of them said to the other, I don't like this piece or can you, can you do something better? Maybe it was the president. This might've been Grover Cleveland or one of the 1880s presidents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so Sousa said, yeah, I'll write something. So he wrote what's called the presidential Polonaise. Um, and they used it for a while, but it, it never caught on. So hail to the chief kind of came back. And that's what it's been ever since. And presidential, presidential Polonaise is actually a piece we've played before, but it never was, it never became the new Hail to the Chief. That's not what's used for the vice president now, is it? What no, is that's Hail Columbia. Hail Columbia. Hail Columbia. Oh, okay. It's, we know yeah. Hail Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. It's again, a very popular tune at the time. And mm-hmm. I mean, the, the national anthem was a popular tune at the time before yeah, it yeah. got, it got used as, you know, the anthem. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so that, and it just, it's, it's become the official military honors for the commander in chief. Each, branch of each level of of command in the military has a different tune so if you're a flag officer in the army you get a flag officer's march if you're if you're a um, army officer you get a you get a general officer's march which is different if you're a member of congress or uh then you get uh stars and stripes forever last strain of stars and stripes forever again vice president gets um hail columbia Mm -hmm. 
so it's, it depends on what rank you are in order in terms of your in terms of your um, presidential honors or your your military honors rather. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's kind of the the short story of Hail to the Chief. We do do we we do ruffles and flourishes at the beginning of that, which is dun da dun da dun dun da dun da dun. For the president, it's four, and for four-star generals, there's four. Um, three-star generals get three of those repeated, and two-star generals, one star, it goes down to one, um, depending on your rank. Uh, I think members of Congress do get four. Um, Does the VP so, get any? Yeah, they get four. Hmm. And the Ruffles and Flourishes dates back all the way to the Navy, like in the 1830s, I think, uh, when they just basically said naval regulations, whenever the president shows up, you have to give a ruffle on the drums. And that, that kind of evolved into, you know, dun, 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 this little very short fanfare, you know, that you could repeat however many times, depending on their rank. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until the McKinley administration, I think, in the early 20th century that he got both ruffles and flourishes and hail to the chief. And that became the official military honors that the band has done ever since. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I had known that the uh, hail to the chief was used, utilized already by the time Lincoln was in office they were referencing scholars marine band you know playing that every time yeah yeah no he, it was it was definitely used um, but it was you know a lot of things were unofficial you know in the early days and then they eventually coalesced into you know actually official military regulation you know if you if you ever look at the if you ever go back and look at the inauguration ceremonies we do not play we we, we don't play hail to the chief for the new president until after he's sworn in and we do that. We do four ruffles and flourishes and hail to the chief after they're sworn in and sworn in and they get a, they get a, I think they get a, a, a cannonball. And that is the official music. I mean, it's, it's a musical way of, of denoting they have just been given military authority. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's, that's a, that's a musical recognition of the, the military of the United States saying you are now our elected, the commander in chief of the entire United States military. Mm-hmm. And the Marine band has done that you know, for 200, over 200 years, 220 years. And I think that's yeah, just yeah. amazing. Yeah. I never thought of it particularly in that way. That, yeah. I mean, you it's know, the it's, military authority way. Yeah. I mean, he is the commander in chief and, and, and of all of the armed forces. And of course our founders were very wise to put a civilian over all that, you know? And so when he's given that authority after he takes the oath of office, I mean, instantly that song is played because he is now the head of of all armed forces in, in the United States. And it's, it's a powerful moment. And it's a silly little tune to, you know, dum, you know, bum, bum, ba-dum, bum, ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. but that tune, boy, it Carry, it, carries a lot of weight now. It carries <laughs> a lot of weight. And especially when, you know, you're a kid that grew up in Nevada sitting on the lectern, mm-hmm. you know, looking up and seeing my, the president right there, you yeah. know, less than seven feet away from you, and he was just taking that oath with this, the chief justice of the Supreme court. And then you look to your left and you see the entire mall filled with people hmm. and you're in the same uniform that Scala wore, yeah. you know, I mean, playing the same music at the same moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty powerful thing. I mean, I, I, I that's not been lost on me. Let me tell you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think when I, when I walk, when Obama, president Obama got inaugurated for the first time in 2009, um, of course, you know, the, the mall was absolutely packed. I mean, was that, was that your first inauguration? No, uh, G- George W. Bush's second was my first. Hmm. So I got in 2002, his, his inauguration was second inauguration was 2005. So, hmm. but I mean, I, I have never seen that many people and I will never see that many people again. I mean, I, there were, I think there were people in the trees. I swear it was mm-hmm. just, it, it was stunning how many people there were. 
and it was cold. It was really cold. Mm. And they were, they were there. And, and I, I remember just, and of course they would, this, the, the security was so tight. Yeah. They shut up. They basically shut all the bridges down. So we all had to sleep at the barracks. We couldn't go home. Wow. And we, we, you know, the, the day started at 4am. We were there already to go at 4am. We waited and waited and waited. We, and we, we got these badges so we could go through this, this layer after layer after layer of security. I mean, amazing security. And we just get ushered through these little hallways around the Capitol building. And then you're up on that, that, that stand that they, they built every build every four years. I mean, you're there. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is, you know, that the only reason that the, that Mark Jenkins, euphonium player from Las Vegas, Nevada is being allowed in that place at that time is because I'm wearing that uniform and because people like Scala have led the way and have paved the way with fantastic music and tradition for 200 years. Mm -hmm. The Marine band always plays the inauguration always. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that's, that's amazing. You know, I'm, I'm sitting in the same spot as countless generations of men and women who have done what I'm doing. And boy, what a special feeling and what a, what a, a I mean, I'll use the word sacred even, you know, in terms of an American, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. in America, we don't get the huge histories like our, our, you know, our, our allies over the, over the ocean, like England and, and France and Germany, you know, their great histories back in the middle ages and things. We don't get mm -hmm. that. But we do get this, you know, this is one thing that we can, it's special for us. And it's, it's something that we can do that in some ways they couldn't do for a lot of years, which is the peaceful transfer of power. And uh, the fact that the Marine Band is so in instrumental, <laughs> no pun intended, I guess pun intended there, uh, in that process is, um, is, is amazing to me. It's amazing. So yeah, it's a great history. And of course, the Marine Band played such a great part in the Euphonium's evolution. I mean, mm -hmm. if the Marine band hadn't been, you know, there, perfect examples in, after Sousa died in, in 1932, I mean, the bands were done and the touring bands around the country, it was over that, that had passed jazz had completely and blues had completely taken its place mm -hmm. in terms of popular music. I mean, it was, it was, it was just a, it was a, you know, a huge turn. And, and of course, a lot of the, the, the early blues and ragtime, at least the, 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 the song formats took a lot from the bands, you know, the, the early, the early ragtimes from uh, Scott Joplin, if you look at them, they're the exact, in the exact format of a Sousa March. Hmm. I mean, down to the number of measures. Yeah. Wow. And so, um, but even with that, you know, bands were done and because the Marine band was a military unit and it had a military function on top of its function of state at the white house. And then of course it's just, it's concertizing we had federal funding and we could keep going. Mm -hmm. So we outlived the commercial ensembles that just went away. Yeah. Yeah. And in the 1970s, when the military, the American military graduated from a draft heavy, you know, a volunteer, well, it was still volunteer, but in terms of a, in terms of a fighting force, a professional fighting force that trained people and kept people for a career versus, you know, using people as, on, on, at, you know, for the, with the draft and then releasing them after four years of service or whatever. Mm -hmm or less, um, the pay got way better, the benefits got way better, the GI Bill came into being, and so all of a sudden, now the military was a very viable career path for really fine musicians to consider, you know, on par with, with a symphony orchestra. Mm -hmm. 
And so then that changed the game again. And yeah. again, the Marine Band was the first, you know, and, and the oldest and had the history and had the place in the White House and has, because of that has been, you know, present at all these great events in the nation's history. And so that brings prestige, it brings notoriety and it helps the instruments in the band because it takes that along with it. And one of those instruments has always been the euphonium. I guess the, the military academy at West Point and the, Na and the Naval Academy both of their bands probably have like similar histories, but I guess, yes, uh, not not being at the exact center of things here in the the nation's capital. I guess maybe to a, a lesser extent, we're able to contribute to like the development of instrumentation in ensembles and stuff like that. But I'm assuming, right, that they're that those were the three bands that were around during that time period: the Marine Band. The, West Point Military Academy yeah. Band and the Naval Academy Band. Yeah, well, the, the West Point Band started, I think, like I said before, I think it was like 1805. And I think the, the Naval Academy was like in the 20, 1820s or 30s. Mm. But yeah, those are the two second and third oldest bands. Um, and what's interesting is John Prosperi, who was the second um, earliest euphonium player that I found. Well, he played baritone. I know he, his, his market is playing baritone. Um, he he actually left the Marine band and went and joined the, the, the Naval Academy band. And at that point, the Naval Academy band, they weren't even enlisted. They were just a they were just a regular group of civilians that were called the Naval Academy band. Hmm. It, it wasn't until later that they actually had to be, you know, be in the Navy to, to be in the, the, the Academy band. Hmm. And he played in that group for quite a long time um, before he retired. But um, yeah, so th those, those two were very important. Um, and like I said, the West Point band was very important because they were probably the first actually paid, regularly paid band in the service because they certainly were before the marine band was because mm -hmm. we took their model when we got re you know reorganized and and got actual you know pay from the u.s government instead of just pocket change from marine corps officers mm -hmm. but um yeah and, and i'm sure that they've, they've left their mark as well all military ensembles have left their mark because again we were able to take the momentum that we that Sousa created when you know with his band that finally went away and and, and pro keep propelling that during the World War II years and even the, into the Korea years um, with this really, the surge in patriotism, patriotism and nationalism that, that really started surging in the 1890s. After, after the Civil War and the 1880s and 90s, that's when American nationalism really started to go crazy. Mm -hmm. And of course, Sousa just rode that wave. All yeah. the bands rode that wave and the military bands rode that wave. And that lasted all the way up until really Vietnam. And, and I'm not a, you know, super historian here but i you know that that really it, it was part of american life you know flag waving you know it was just you know america is is good america is is a good thing in the world and our bands reflect that yeah, yeah. you know and world war one and world war two you know that was a those were pretty clear conflicts you know world war one less so but world war two especially you know we knew what we were fighting for we, we knew we were going against a force that had to be defeated they we had to defeat them Mm -hmm. And we knew we were in the right. And, and so we, the bands just, we, we played into that and we played into this. We're all in, the, in this together. It's a very difficult fight. We have to do a lot of, we have to make a lot of sacrifices in order to win this. And the bands were right there, you know, mm -hmm. helping to articulate that. And going into Korea and Vietnam, the bands were there. But unfortunately, during Vietnam, especially, you know, the military got painted in such a bad role. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, it, that's just what happened. And yeah. it, that didn't, it's funny because I, I talked to all these euphonium players 
that are still alive that were in there at that time. And, and they really, I think they felt it, you know, they felt, even though that people would still come to the concerts and stuff like that, the, the, the military it took a hit mm-hmm. and nationalism took a hit um, during that time that it didn't really start coming back until the Reagan years, I think is really the eighties is when it kind of maybe resurfaced a little bit. Well, to bring everything full circle, I know uh, there's a book that I've read called Troubled Commemoration. I think it's by Robert Cook. I could be wrong about that, but uh, that book discusses the multi, uh, as the, the Civil War centennial was approaching in 1961, they were uh, a lot of different groups kind of disagreeing on what the commemoration should focus on. Right. And uh, Ulysses, Ulysses S. Grant III was actually a part of the Congressional Committee to help uh, create the or solidify the uh, commemoration for the centennial. But sure. it, it started uh, focusing on and they started getting uh, a good idea of what they wanted it to be to focus on American patriotism amidst all the uh, yeah the wars that you were just saying yeah all, all, the, all the all the discourse with uh, communism so yeah. They, yeah. they wanted they wanted the American Civil War centennial in 1961 to be that resurgence of American patriotism and then that's when a lot of Civil War brass bands started getting reactivated and recreated and you know this idea of early American brass bands in the modern era kind of started you know out of this idea of wanting to rekindle that patriotism that was lost in that what, 20 yeah. year period. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it, it was, that, that is interesting. Yeah. It really was a hit, you know, and, and like I said, the band, the military bands, you know, we, we got through it fine. Um, this, the bicentenary, you know, helped in 1976. Um, and then again, just the, the Reagan years in the eighties, we, we helped a lot. The, you know, the economy was great. And our, our, our military seemed, you know, very strong. And, and then of course, when the Soviet union fell, uh, which I remember very well. Um, that was a huge thing. And uh, again, a, a huge resurgence of, I think, patriotism that helped. Mm-hmm. And I think it's still alive today. You know, the, the question again is, you know, the Marine Band uh, is not a reenactor band, you know, like yeah. a lot of the brass bands. We're not. We, we are the same band that has been around since, you know, 1798, you know, mm-hmm. and we do the same thing we've been doing. We wear the same uniforms we've been wearing, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's not, a, um, it's not a costume it's not a costume, it's a military uniform. And, and so the, you know, the question of, you know, is the, is the concert band still relevant today? You know, is, is that a form of music in the musical culture, capital C culture that is still relevant? We, we ask ourselves a lot, you know, when we go on tour, you know, to uh, these towns, you know, we, you know, we wonder if there's, if, if you know, a lot of, a lot of times, most of the times the, 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 the theaters are full. But sometimes we go and the theaters aren't aren't as full, you know, not that they're empty, but, you know, we wonder, it's like, okay, is this, is, is this a sign? You know, I don't know. Is this, is this a generational thing? You know, but at the same time, I'm, I'm sorry, but there's no age group that can't love a Susan March, you know, and there's no age group that can't be interested in a, an ensemble that's been around that is, as long as ours has. And on top of that, I'm just talking about the concertizing on top of that. The real reason I think that groups like the Marine band have survived is that we have a functionality, a military functionality and, and of, of doing funerals at Arlington cemetery of doing military ceremonies. And of course the funerals at Arlington cemetery are the most sacred things that we do. 
Mm-hmm. I've done hundreds of them. Yeah. You know, it never gets old for me. It, it just it never does because I, I, I every time I feel like I'm I'm freezing my butt off here, I would not I don't want to be in 34 degree weather playing a euphonium in the middle of a field yeah. or a cemetery. I look over and there's that family. You know, they have tears streaming down their face, whether it's a an active duty Marine that's that's died or whether it's a guy who served served 30 years ago in Vietnam and, or, or, you know, more than that was Vietnam's more than 30 years ago now, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but you know, who served, who, who left the service 30 years ago, you know, who did serve in Vietnam or who served in the Gulf war, you know, in, in 91 mm-hmm. and has died and, and his, his family's there, or, you know, a guy who they've just gotten their, his remains back from Peleliu in the South Pacific who died in world war two. Yeah. You know, the, those it's like, that is the greatest honor that we can pay those people those those marines that died men and women mm-hmm. and they're it's it's also the greatest honor since those those are those people are departed we can honor their families by showing by showing them that the marine band still values their sacrifice their family member sacrifice and we're going to show you through our music and we're going to play it the best we can and I, I tell you that that's something that has that will always make military bands in America um, relevant. Uh, administrations come and administrations go, but the Marine Band is constant. And yeah. it's always amazing to see a new administration come in because they're always like, now, what do you guys do? Because <laughs> you know, some of them have never been in, in, in D.C. before, like, you know, President Obama had never been in D.C. I mean, he was a senator, but he, he you know, I'm sure he'd seen the band in passing, but you know, unless you're at the White House a lot, and of course, you know, President Trump, you know, he he wasn't in Washington, so they're always like, now, what do you guys do? You know, how do how do you fit into this? You know, and then we show them, well, look, we can do anything you want us to do, and we are we can do any music musical support you want. Yeah, they're like, really? Wait, you can do this? And we're like, yeah, here, let me show you. Wait, you can do this? Yeah, let me. You can play you can play drum set when I'm doing a rap with, uh, what's the guy named, who did Hamilton, Miranda? Um, Lynn manuel Lin-Manuel Miranda. Miranda, yeah. yeah. So you can play, one of your guys can play drum set while President Obama, you know, does a, a makeup rap with, with Miranda on the South Lawn. You can do that. And we're like, yes. And they're just, their mind is blown. They're like, <laughs> oh, well, okay then. Well, we're, we, we will use you, you know, we will definitely use you. <laughs> and so it's amazing to see how each administration kind of warms to the band when they realize, you know, we're there for them. We're there to support them and the office. And we're, then, we're there to make them look good. We're them, there to, to make a bill signing, a, you know, a cocktail party work. You know, perfect example. There's a great story when the, the, the prime minister was the president of, of France. One of the two. Maybe it was the president. I think it's the president. He came over uh, during Trump's really early during Trump's administration uh, for a state dinner. And of course, what happens is, is that the president, the, the orchestra of the Marine band is there in the grand foyer. The president walks down with the first lady, to the front door, the president of France is there with his wife. They meet and they're supposed to, the, the band is, or the orchestra is just supposed to play traveling music as they walk past the orchestra into the elevators up to the private area to have their dinner. And well, that didn't happen this time. So again, President Trump is, is pretty new. So he brought the, uh, the uh, French president over to the orchestra to listen to the music. And I can't remember, I don't know what music they were playing at the time, but it wasn't very long because again, it doesn't take long for them to walk. 
So <laughs> they came up and the music ended. And so uh, Colonel Jason Fedig, who's our director, um, the 28th director, turned to the president and said, Mr. President, is there a, another selection that you'd like to hear? And of course, the, the French president um, said, well, do you know Bizet, Carmen, you know, Carmen. And it just so happens that we have a Carmen arrangement in our folders and our principal flautist, Beth Plunk or Beth McDonald, who's fantastic um, soloist. She's fantastic. She, she, um, it was, I can't remember which part of it, but it's the one that has the beautiful flute solo in it, you know, in, in the Carmen, Carmen fantasy score or the Carmen score. And so we played that piece for the French president and the president and their first ladies standing right in front of us. Nice. And when, when was this? This was just, I was when the, whenever the French president came, this last time you could probably look it up on, you know, on YouTube or on, on Google. Mm. But, um, and there was no press there. It was just yeah. them. It was just those four people, maybe an aide or something. And then the, the, the orchestra. And they were thrilled. And of course, you know, President Trump said, these guys are world class, you know, so thank they were, I mean, it was, it was a win. It was a win and it was an icebreaker, you know, and they went up and I'm sure that that helped, that helped them. Yeah. yeah you know, in terms of diplomacy. And, and so that's the kind of stuff that we can do again to aid in, in, in the, 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 these, these meetings of state that happen, that, that um, music can, it can grease the skids to use a, you know, a term, you can use a, a plebeian term, it can grease the skids. So, yeah, it, it's, the band has been really instrumental in a lot of ways, again, use the pun, but um, over year, over the years to, to help that, that happen. It, during World War II, here's another great story, the band uh, played a concert for Winston Churchill and President Roosevelt in the rain on the South Lawn, and it was just them. So just those two in two chairs sitting, listening to a concert by the Marine band in the room. Wow. And um, again, you can't help but think that, that that did cement that relationship. I mean, Winston Churchill was basically coming to the United States begging for help. And the people in the United States were like, look, we came once <laughs> a couple of yeah, years, yeah. You know, 20 years ago. We don't want to do this again. And he's like, look, this is different. You've got to help. And so yeah. Roosevelt, you know, that they were, Kind of working that out i think and i think the marine band played a part in that yeah what else do you guys want to know are we good read we, we done is that about uh, all you can take yeah i oh well, it's not all we can take but i think i think we'll leave it pretty right. close to there yeah, uh well. we can't thank you enough for for coming out and <laughs> turning on your computer during the the health crisis and and doing this interview with us wow that was a lot of information but that was incredible that was very very cool to to get to discuss those things with dr jenkins uh earlier today um we wanted to thank you guys for for listening to this episode number three from the early american brass band podcast if you have any questions please feel free to email us at eabb.podcast at gmail.com be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening platform for podcasts and also like us on facebook and instagram and if you're listening on apple podcasts and want to help uh, the podcast out it would be great if you would feel so inclined as to rate the podcast and leave a review that really helps us get boosted up in search results uh, for people who are looking for new material to listen to so if you would like to leave us a review and a rating we'd greatly appreciate it <laughs> This episode's featured 
album is going to be the CD re-release of the Empire Brass Quintet's famous uh, Civil War music album titled The American Brass Band Journal. This CD was re-released, I think, in 2005 as a double, uh, a combination of two albums. The Empire Brass Quintet uh, brought in, they call it the Empire Brass Quintet and Friends, came together and recorded music in... Uh, 1976 and recorded a bunch of music from the American uh, from the brass band journal which was a publication of music that came out in the 1850s and they released uh, a recording of, of all these different songs and then two years later in 1978 under the direction of dr. Frederick Fennell uh, they recorded the Empire Brass Quintet and Friends, the American Brass Band Journal Revisited. And that second album is actually, the title is a little bit misleading. Um, the music that they play on the Revisited album is actually from uh, the Stratton's Military Journal. So it's not from the American, uh, from the Brass Band Journal, uh, but they just released it under a similar title for the Empire's album, just for continuity. So our featured album is the American Brass Band Journal CD from 2005 by the American Brass Quintet. Information for that album will be available on our website under show notes. Yeah, as always, the, each episode will have a show notes uh, section on the website, which is eabbpodcast.com. Um, so be sure to head over there if uh, you want to go down a rabbit hole on anything we mentioned during the episode. We'll have links for you over there. Thank you very much. Talk to you on the next one.